Okay. <laughs> okay, well, we're live. It's Saturday, April 22nd, 2023, and we have another Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Apologies to our listeners for being a few minutes late. We were listening to music together, um, and I personally got kind of caught up in it. We were listening to um, My Dear Mr. Gay by Tina Marie. Um, like in previous, I think it was a few months ago, we played um, another song by Tina Marie, who I only had just discovered because Doc had showed us her music. But we, a few weeks ago or a few months ago, we played the song um, Miss Coretta by Tina Marie. And that was really powerful where like she included um, Coretta Scott King's voice um, and just these beautiful words about Martin Luther King Jr. And you know, her saying, what manner of man was this? Like, may we make ourselves worthy of his life. His life mm -hmm. was a blessing. Um, and so earlier, just a few seconds ago, we were listening to another song of hers, which is actually my favorite. Um, it was the first song Doc showed us, which was My Dear Mr. Gay, which is Tina Marie's tribute to Marvin Gaye, who had passed away. Um, yeah, and I love, she kind of like, at the end of the song, well, first of all, the song starts with her saying like, come inside from the rain. You know, it's just really beautiful, like come inside from the rain, like, and then, you know, she goes into like, like, we'll make love, whatever. But <laughs> it's like this, you know, just a really loving song. And then she ends the song with the riff from what's going on. But it's her saying, like, we'll always love you, Marvin. Like, I'll always love you. I'll always love you, Marvin. Mm -hmm. It's just a really beautiful song. But anyways, enough, enough grooving. Um, and today we're going to continue our reading of Hegel's Science of Logic, which I'm really excited about. Um, but before we go into the pages, I'll give it to um, Doc to kind of bring us back to why we're reading Hegel and framing it. Thanks a lot, Emily, and good morning to everybody. And you know, it's like, uh, I'm like everybody else, I can't wait for these hours together where we can engage in very serious uh, intellectual and political work. So I guess what I'm expressing is my gratitude to all of y'all for making this possible. Uh, so let me get, so I just wanted to say as we, <clears throat> uh, once again, and we will get into the reading, readings of the um, this first part, of the uh, science of logic. I just wanted to make our case, our case, that is the free school's case for reading philosophy and Hegel in particular. Um, I, I, I want to again state why we're reading Hegel, but which I'm emphasizing why the free school is reading Hegel, or better, why we've returned to Hegel because we had begun this over a year ago. And also how is our reading of Hegel different from what uh, one would expect if she or he took a university course in a philosophy department uh, and read Hegel, or what one could perhaps get in the inexhaustible lectures on Hegel on YouTube by the way, there's so many lectures on Hegel on YouTube that 
uh, you would get completely confused if you did not know what's going on and who the people are and what their ideologies are vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hegel. Or the many articles one might discover on the internet or what one might read on Wikipedia or from various and sundry encyclopedias of philosophy. To say how we're different, we must say where and how we begin, not just with Hegel, but with philosophy, period. As we have said many times, philosophy is politics by other means, which is to say it is ideology and hence is connected to the class struggle, the national liberation struggle, the struggles for racial and gender equality, and significantly to the struggles for peace and a new democracy. It is, our reading that is, is using Hegel's words in his philosophy of history, connected to the epoch that produces philosophy and to the epoch that is transcending the epoch that produced philosophy. The question then is what is politics and what is ideology? Briefly, politics is ultimately the struggle to achieve, maintain, consolidate, rearrange, and bring into being new politics and power. Politics is ultimately about power and therefore about the state. The state is that set of institutions, structures, networks, and people where ultimate decision-making and strategic power rests. That is the state and philosophy and ideology and politics cannot be understood without understanding their connections to the state and to the arrangements of power. Anything other than that, I should say, is, uh, I would say, obscurantist, that is to obscure the real nature of power, the real nature of ideology, uh, the real nature of uh, struggle and class and, and, and national liberatory struggles. However, political struggle is finally the struggle of ideas. Winning the ideological struggle is tantamount to winning the struggle for power. There is no struggle for power that is not guided by ideas and ideology. But then what is ideology? In its most general sense, and here <clears throat> I am drawing upon Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in their works on philosophy. Ideology is a worldview in its concrete manifestations, it is the worldview of significant class and political forces in society.
especially a class that holds on to power, must solidify its worldview or its ideology. In this respect, if you look at American society, that tiny part of the population that controls power either through corporate and economic means or through political means and the state are not hesitant in putting forward their ideas, their worldviews, and in fact claiming that their worldview are or is uh, the worldview of society itself. In other words, they attempt to give a moral uh, grounding to their ideology by saying that their ideology represents the best of, best of and for society. And in fact, is the moral grounding of social solidarity and social stability. Uh, we can return to some of this if you wish to ask questions. Without saying more, we approach Hegel in this way. We do philosophy because we in the free school are deeply connected with and committed to ideas and how revolutionary ideas can be liberation forces, liberatory forces. Mm -hmm. Nothing is more powerful, one writer said, than an idea whose time has come. And so it is not a, uh, an unimportant mm. uh, leisurely occupation to engage in ideas, to understand ideas and their connections to social and political forces in society. In fact, it is the opposite not to be engaged in ideas is literally to say that the best that people are capable of is a cycle of empty activity without a connection to the ideological changes in society. Uh, these relationships between dominant and um, liberatory ideas is what we call ideological relationships. The relationships of ideas in society. You know, in the free school, you know, as, as a lot of people know, we have taken positions on any number of, um, of ideas that are current in our society. Uh, and uh, we do so because we care for people and we understand that wrong ideas will stifle the capacity of people to become agents of freedom yeah. and democracy. I mean, we saw this with uh, identity politics, which took society and the people, you know, it, you know like it, it suddenly uh, appeared and suddenly it was everywhere and it was loud and it was boisterous and it was canceling people. Uh, and we stood up against them. And obviously 
uh, what goes along with identity politics is cancel culture. And in standing up against those ideas, we had to take a stance against the class forces and the institutions like universities that promoted them. Most philosophers, by which I mean most academic philosophers, connect Hegel to Kant and to Marx. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. These are widely explored areas of investigation in philosophy. For example, if you went to the University of Chicago, which is, has a pretty good uh, philosophy department, uh, especially in German classical philosophy, uh, you would come out with a real deep academic understanding of the relationship of Kant and Hegel, a very technical understanding. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> mentioning the University of Chicago, if you went there, if you go to YouTube, you would probably run into a philosopher named Robert Pippin, who is celebrated as a Hegel expert. But he finds Hegel lacking, and in fact finds the 20th century German phenomenologist, Martin Heidegger, you can ask me about him if you wish to, uh, more important or having superseded Hegel. Uh, some connect Hegel to Sartre and Nietzsche and to existentialism. Other philosophers, like the analytical philosopher, British analytical philosopher of the early 20th century, Bertrand Russell, and American pragmatists, like William James and Samuel Pierce and the neo-pragmatists, such as the, um, the Princeton philosopher Richard Rorty and Cornell West, by the way, uh, dismiss Hegel as confused, as metaphysical, and as removed uh, from the life world of actual people. We, on the other hand, approach Hegel in the ways that Marx and Lenin and indeed Du Bois did. We connect the science of logic and this is what is novel and unique in our approach. We connect the science of logic to Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. We, therefore, are not satisfied with abstraction and metaphysics, which are a big part of Hegel's uh, science of logic. And I, I should say parenthetically, not in the, not in the worst way, by the way. Uh, but we approach Hegel from the concrete. I want to explain that. Marx called this ascending to the concrete. That to take philosophy from the realm of abstraction 
to apply it to concrete social relations was not a dissent uh, to the concrete, but to ascend to the concrete. And I wish to underline that. And this is a great insight, a very transgressive uh, move on Karl Marx's part, that philosophy alone was not sufficient because of its uh, over-determination by the abstract. And so he, so let me just continue. Um, our move, that is the free schools move from the abstract and abstract universals to the concrete is manifested in our approach to Du Bois and Black Reconstruction in America. Our grasp of the essence of complexity and social complexity is our starting point, not with categories of knowledge. So we begin with complex concrete realities. You know, it's so interesting, this connection not made between Hegel's science of logic and Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America is probably one of the most promising moves in philosophy and social theorizing since Karl Marx applied Hegel's uh, dialectical categories to an understanding of capitalist social economic relationships. In fact, it's a well-rehearsed uh, argument that the first chapter of Das Kapital, Marx's magnum opus, is really showing the application of the dialectical categories and dialectical methods in science of logic as they would be applied to economic categories. Uh, we could go back to that. However, at another time and probably not now, we might show the entanglements that is connectedness of Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk and Baldwin's essays in particular, the one Thoughts from a Region of My Mind and Hegel's phenomenology of mind. There are relations and connections here that have not been made, that could and should be made. But for now, our central concern is for Hegel's science of logic and its relation to Black Reconstruction and Du Bois's central category in Black Reconstruction, and this is not understood, Du Bois' central category is the Black proletariat and the proletariat itself. You know, and, and through the Bandung Reading Group, 
through other reading groups that we have, and through free school itself. We have discovered that to understand Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, you must understand its central knowledge category, and that is the Black proletariat. We have in the past and will continue to explore how Hegelian dialectics, dialectics meaning the logic, logic of contradiction. And if you don't mind me once again repeating this, it is different than the logic of identity or the logic of syllogisms associated with the work of Aristotle. In fact, most logics today, be they mathematical, be they uh, uh, computer logics, be they algorithms, are based upon uh, Aristotelian logic, which excludes the, uh, the position of, um, uh, of contradiction let me let me explain that you know i think we went through this last week i'll just say it again in in aristotle's um syllogisms and by the way just a parenthesis this is not beyond the understanding and knowledge capability of ordinary people uh so that's why we're doing it by the way um for aristotle a thing is itself that is a is a a is not B, is the second law. And the third one, which is an impossibility in Aristotle's logic, which is the law of the excluded middle. A thing cannot be itself and its opposite at the same time. That is in fact where Hegelian logic begins, mm -hmm. that everything exists as itself and its opposite at the same time, because everything exists in a state of motion, a state of movement, which thereby gives a hint to what might be the resolution of the conundrum of quantum physics and small particle physics, which do not fit any laws or patterns of, uh, of large bodies. Uh, I, I won't get a lot into that. Uh, we're setting up, if I guess everybody knows, we're gonna to try to set up a reading group on physics and uh, a theoretical physics and philosophy in an attempt to find a resolution that to problems that people say, are unresolvable, but that's for another day. Um, I guess uh, uh, let me just go here. I hope I'm being coherent. Hegel's concept of being, of essence, of dialectics might help to clarify. Again, quantum and theoretical physical problems, physics problems, as well as string theory, not to mention the patterns of class 
and social struggle within the United States. Again, we study Hegel's logic in relationship to Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. In so doing, we elevate Hegelian categories of knowledge to the concrete and to the revolutionary process. Ours is not a metaphysical project. Ours is a concrete project, but a concrete project in order to understand the concrete requires adequate categories of knowledge. I hope I'm making sense. Okay. Uh, hence, we can propose, that is we in the Saturday Free School, that the United States is capable of revolutionary change and in fact, a fourth American revolution. And we can uh, confidently make the claim that arguments, anti-revolutionary arguments at this time in the United States are, are philosophically, uh, how would I put it, uh, philosophically empty arguments. If one understands what Hegel understood, that everything exists in a state of motion, that the principal law of dialectics is the law of negation as in, the negation of a negation, the negation of that which itself had previously negated an earlier moment in natural or human history. This concept of negation, this concept of movement, this concept of possibility emerging from the movement of things, the conflict of opposites is, is central. And it informs the way we go about our work. To deepen our understanding of the category, the black proletariat, its essence and concrete substance, we do philosophy. To better understand what Du Bois' studies of the class struggle in the United States uh, were getting at, we connect these studies, Du Bois' studies, uh, to Hegelian logic. We take seriously Hegel's claim that philosophy is the science of science, that it is, that is philosophy, a knowledge apparatus, a scaffolding, if you will, that helps us understand society. However, as Marx, Lenin, and even Sartre showed, Hegel did not quite show the connection between abstract knowledge categories and concrete social complexity. So we do not start where Hegel started, i.e. with the notion, the 
abstract concept. We start with the concrete. We go from Du Bois and social historical complexity to Hegel and dialectically back to Du Bois. From Du Bois to Hegel, back to Du Bois. Isn't that an interesting dialectic? This is to understand the movement of U.S. history towards a fourth American revolution and towards our ability to understand the concrete ideological and political struggles now occurring in our society and in the world. I had dinner the other evening with Caleb and Anna. They were working out their futures and their graduate school possibilities. I suggested given their concerns with uh, uh, cognitive science and sociology and urban geography, they might consider reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Uh, they were very open to that and they asked if certain groups reading philosophy might be where they might start. And I suggested that they not. And I suggested they not for reasons that I've already given. To begin wrongly is to end up in the wrong place. So you end up, uh, rather than being closer to the concrete, uh, being uh, closer to the metaphysical and the abstract. All philosophy and all ideas must bend towards the future and the struggle to usher in the epoch of humanity. To achieve our country, to use Baldwin's formulation, demands that we bend philosophy towards the future. To make America the last white nation puts demands upon philosophy that philosophers themselves are incapable or unwilling to do, especially academic philosophers, who turn great philosophers into gods rather than into agents of knowledge and useful to greater human projects. We are faced with the fierce urgency of now to cite King. We must know the world so that it might be changed. However, to fully know the world is to be part of changing the world. Uh, and that's kind of how we go at this. Uh, sometimes I refer to uh, the knowledge process the process of understanding categories of knowledge as uh, we'll forgive this language uh, concrete metaphysics metaphysics meaning uh, those categories that precede our immediate experience with the world mm -hmm. those categories that make knowledge possible um, but and that's 
that's called often metaphysics. Meta before, higher than the physical. However, concrete metaphysics subverts abstraction and uh, looks uh, to the concrete world. So I just wanted to say that as we, you know, start again our reading, resume our reading today of the science of logic, which I feel is a, is a really uh, great project. Um, I don't know why more people don't do it, frankly, uh, especially if they claim an allegiance to radical change in society. But I'll stop there. <laughs> Emily? <laughs> no, I'm still processing. Um, well, because there are some key things that you helped clarify this morning, actually. Um, I guess I'll work backwards. Well, as you know, I furiously take notes all the time. Yeah. So sometimes too many notes. Mm -hmm. but, well, first of all, I want to begin with what you said at the end, just like Baldwin would say, that all philosophy, first of all, all philosophy must be bent toward the future. And that also, and I think within that you have this thing that you said earlier, which is that because in some ways what you laid out, but also how I'm processing everything and especially us taking on Hegel is we don't take, we're not reading Hegel in a vacuum, but it's us, like us coming from understanding the significance and the revolutionary, like the revolutionary essence of Du Bois's Black Reconstruction and that central category, the Black proletariat, that that is where we, that is how we read Hegel. But I feel like to go deeper, it's to also say, I really like the what you clarified about um, that the starting point of how you process things or seek to know things or seek to understand the world is very important. Um, because for us, like for us, um, we, unlike, un like you said, like unlike Hegel, who begins with the notion, like yeah. something abstract mm -hmm. or us like Du Bois we begin with the complex the concrete complexity of uh humanity basically the human complexity of the world and then from there we like we can read from there we go to what is it like a sense of the concrete it's like we start with the concrete complexities that define humanity that is humanity and that is where we begin to even shape what ca what categories of knowledge can explain the world, um, which is, I mean, in some ways, which is how you can define Black Reconstruction. It's yeah. beginning with the com a very significant historical period, the complex realities of the American situation, the American revolutionary process. And he begins with like, you know, he begins with the Civil War, slavery. Um, and then from there emerges the question of, the revolutionary process toward a new democracy, the mm -hmm. black proletariat as a revolutionary force. Like that's where these categories emerge. Mm -hmm. Also like, feel free to step in if I'm not like, if not accurate doc, I'm trying, cause this is me like in real time processing what you're saying. But, and I also, I want to tie in, well, because that, like I said, like going back to what you ended with, that is to say 
that philosophy for us, the way we approach philosophy, it might in some ways for me, for example, it's a little foreign or it's it's almost like a muscle that's never been it's almost like a muscle that I didn't even know I had because philosophy, this my whole life, I feel like I always understood philosophy to be the ultimate abstract activity. Mm-hmm. But actually what we're saying is that philosophy is to take ideas seriously and to even take ideology and philosophy in particular seriously is the belief that like that ideas matter and that the wrong ideas, like you said, the wrong, I really loved how you said this, the wrong, wrong ideas. We believe that wrong ideas stifle people to be agents of freedom, which they, they deserve and are meant to be. And um, I don't know. Oh, like I said, there's so, so many layers, but I guess the last point I wanted to make is like something I'm still processing, but I think is really important is that us as free school making the assertion that what we're doing is very significant to start with Du Bois and go to Hegel, but then come in order to come back to Du Bois and understand Du Bois better. Like that's a really interesting process because in some ways it's also what you were saying when you said, I love the way you also explained that Hegel, what Hegel did was very significant um, where he, unlike Aristotle, the logic of identity is the birth of dialectics. And that and that what Marx did was very significant when Marx took Hegel's dialectics and said that it can't be an overdetermination of abstract. But let me take from Hegel to um, to understand certain categories like economic relations and like apply dialectics to certain economic categories to help explain the world or what's happening. But what we're saying is we're going against people who say Du Bois is a derivative of Marx, but instead say what we're doing is that what similar to Marx saying there's an over, I don't want there to be an overdetermination of the abstract, but I'm going to use this powerful dialectics that Hegel was understanding or asserting. Let me take those dialectics and like also add in or apply it to like categories, like concrete categories, of economic relations or something. But what we're saying is that Du Bois is different. Du Bois is not then a derivative of Marx, but Du Bois is its own like emergence of using Hegel's powerful dialectics, making that connection between Hegel and dialectics. And then um, something else like Du Bois's category of the black proletariat. There are different categories of knowledge um, that emerge from Du Bois as Du Bois like understands Hegel. And I don't know, I guess this is in some ways our role. Like I know I'm not mm-hmm. the most specific, but I feel like that's, what free school's impulse is. Well, that's why we're reading Hegel. Um, yeah. Is it cool if I just add on to yeah. what you're saying? Well, <laughs> please. Because <laughs> what you, like what you, what Emily said, and then what Doc started with, I think it made me think about, yeah, the category of the black proletariat that it uses in black reconstruction. Because I think one question that you, it's almost, it raises the question of like, the movement of logic and the movement also it's like the methodology too where mm-hmm. one thing one way you could look at it is that du bois it's not like i think when du bois was starting out his grand study of the reconstruction period it wasn't that he started out from the very beginning to say oh i'm going to study the black proletariat right he did research he did his study of this period and then from that he was able to draw out 
this category, this knowledge category of the black proletariat. But the interesting thing is that then he starts the book with that category. And so it's almost like from the, from like the concrete, the like human complexity, he draws out this category, but then he uses that category to then reinterpret to, or to make sense of that uh, concrete history itself, because like that also as the reader, you're starting out with that, with that knowledge category as the primary thing that is kind of anchoring your understanding of the history that Du Bois is going to lay out. And so it's kind of like, yeah, the move from the concrete to quote unquote, the abstract back to the concrete, but it's not like you're yeah. just moving from one thing, like the same thing to the other thing, back to the same thing. It's more like um, the category itself then helps you to make sense of like the actual concrete yeah. thing of history and of reality. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just hadn't mm. thought of that before because I feel like, yeah, on one hand you can ask the question, how did Du Bois arrive at the black, at the black proletariat category? But then how does he use it to, it's like, it's like both, both movements are important, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm going to add to that, man. That was very enlightening. Uh, when I, when I think about uh, different categories, so you know, so black worker, white worker, planter, uh, yeah. The, the, the way that uh, you, you gave Hegel as uh, history and, and, and these categories relating to in, each other in motion, uh, yeah. that's, that's really powerful in, in Black Reconstructions because we're looking at the logic and the movement of history. And uh, you know, I've heard this phrase before from Marx, like, oh, the history of the world or whatever is like the history of the class struggle. I was yeah. like, that sounds cool, but I didn't really understand why you put it like that. Uh, until under, until we've uh, talked about Hegel and Black Reconstruction, because there's these categories that exist in relation to one another and in motion with each other, and, and I think that's that that is uh, 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 basically the, the movement of history, uh, and I think that that becomes very uh, concrete in uh, in Black Reconstruction, but interestingly, it's uh, in threes, not exactly in twos. Yes. <laughs> Daka, it was really helpful to give that introduction because I think in some ways you're also speaking to the practice of free school. I think for the longest time, I didn't understand why the free school is called the Saturday free school for philosophy and black liberation. Like right. what does philosophy have to do with black liberation? Right. And also in talking about black liberation as representing human liberation as well. Um, and it's interesting because as we're reading um, Hegel's Science of Logic in the upcoming weeks, it's so important for us to understand like where we came from as well as that not isolated from what free school stands for, um, like what free school stands for generally and the task that's taken on in the past couple of weeks and months and years. Because, you know, we had our Black Reconstruction events in February, end of February. Mm -hmm. And before that, we were also reading, in leading up to it, we were reading both Hegel's Science of Logic and um, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned like a group of us were also reading it more deeply as well in during the weekdays, weekdays. And it was so helpful actually for us to go into Black Reconstruction knowing how to read Black Reconstruction. Yeah. yeah. Du Bois, how does Du Bois set up the book in the first three chapters, mm -hmm. the black worker, the white worker and planter? 
like why those categories are so important to understand what unfolds as he goes through um, the events leading up to the Civil War and afterwards as well. And how, like, what is the centrality of, well, or why the category of the Black worker is so important in understanding that period um, in American history, what we call the Second American Revolution. Um, because it's through those categories that, or it's through those categories and specifically the category of the Black worker, they can understand like it as an agent of change, it as moving history forward, and it as also evolving in that time as well um, in the struggle for democracy and a dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, and I think, because it is really difficult, like both everyone was saying, where like for us who are not trained in philosophy, to understand like the significance of philosophy, to even um, know what philosophy is. But right. I think in our practice, in our practice, we're using philosophy um, as we were reading Black Reconstruction. And I think in some ways, like many of us have said, we've read Black Reconstruction several times and each time we learn something new. And I'm so excited for, as we continue to read Hegel's Science of Logic, how we'll also better understand what Du Bois was trying to do and explain in Black Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this whole thing is really exciting. Like my hand is like this. <laughs> like, I feel like um, the way that you explain this, it was like, okay, politics, what is politics? Mm -hmm. But the, like mm -hmm. to rearrange, consolidate mm -hmm. um, power, to understand it, um, to use it. Um, and then you explain ideology and how we've been talking about it for the past couple of weeks about mm -hmm. it being a worldview. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but that also kind of pulls into what others have been saying already and the fact of struggling um, for ideology is not struggling for thought in an abstract sense yes. or, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, like philosophy being just somebody in their own world just talking <laughs> to the wind but actually it is a struggle for humanity because with the right ideas is there a right understanding of humanity like of history of um the time that we're in etc like all of it logic anything that we do is based upon the ideology or worldview that one would have um and i'm also excited in the explanation or connections that we're making because we're explaining how there were different periods in human development and history, evolution mm -hmm. and history, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Aristotle, mm -hmm. there was once people or once people who, human beings alive in time mm -hmm. who just thought that A is A and A cannot be B. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. Hegel or with Hegel also came a period of time. There was a period of time in which Hegel was alive. And why was it also, why did it also come about that? Well, in motion or in a process or in a struggle, do I, do, does new things emerge, whether we see it or we are conscious of it or not? And how does that happen? Um, the movement of history is, is also what we're saying. And to add on to what Emily was trying, was, was describing that, Du Bois being something significant and different is the fact that, well, Du Bois also suggests a development in 
human beings. They're like an evolution mm -hmm. in human thought and practice and <laughs> ideas. Um, so like as similar to how one would respect Aristotle, being like, oh, he is mm -hmm. the thought or the, what is it, the group think or something mm -hmm. of the time. Like the, mm -hmm. What is the word? I always forget the word. Like it's the word that means the particular essence or beliefs and philosophies of the particular moment in history. You could say an icon, whatever. Who? Yeah, the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist. Okay. Yeah, the, like the kind of zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Like Hegel was also like um, Rep yes, representative right. of a particular moment, but then mm -hmm. Du Bois is also representative mm -hmm. of like that period of the 20th century or the, you know, that moved and struggled against imperialism and against, and against slavery. Yes. Like mm -hmm. the move of mm -hmm. the struggle against colonialism and the defeat of the Western and white world. And without the boys, you can't um, think about the 20th century, you can't think about. This is so, I'm sorry, this no, is so interesting. Only because in how you are explaining, well, you know, Hegel can't explain everything. He can't explain an epoch that he does not live in. Doesn't live in, but then there's also Baldwin. Yes. And the, what you said about, um, in the film of Black folk, like, the, um, yeah, the phenomenology of mind, and then Du Bois's or uh, Baldwin's, uh, like uh, thoughts from a region of thoughts my from mind. a region from our mind, in 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 conjunction and connection to the black proletariat <laughs> being the basis in which the struggle for freedom against slavery and colonialism was occurring, which is what Emily was saying. Like that was the basis. That is where all thought and ideology starts at the black proletariat. And it's also interesting, Jeremiah, because I've been thinking about it, that he doesn't start the um, black worker chapter like with um, the transatlantic slave trade, for example, or the fact that like African kings sold yeah, slaves yeah. to yeah. white people, yeah. but that he started that the Emancipation Proclamation um, was a dramatic event. Um, and I just, Think that that's that's particularly interesting. He that's where he starts Black Reconstruction, um, but yeah, I just say it's exciting. I don't know if you want me to still talk about the Black Reconstruction paintings, but I've been thinking we'll, we'll, about we'll, we'll, we'll it. Go to that in a minute. I, I, that's the only reason why I've been thinking about it. I don't have to go there now. But um, yeah, so basically, the fact that like the logic or like the um, the ways that we're thinking have been advanced because of the revolutions in modern man or, or society. Um. Yeah, I'm happy you brought, oh, I'm sorry, was someone else gonna speak? Maybe Michelle was, I don't know. Okay, okay, she was. Oh, Kathy was? Oh. I think Michelle. Oh, well, I just wanted to add in like, I'm happy you brought up Baldwin, Serafina, because that was one specific point that you brought up Doc, in your introduction where, to me, see, that opens up a whole dimension because that was in some ways, bringing up James Baldwin is what made me realize that 
what we're doing is very significant. It's actually beyond Du Bois. It's because I think in some ways people, there's a way of understanding when we talk, when we talk about Du Bois, Du Bois, Du Bois, that we're just trying to say like Du Bois. But actually what we're trying to say is that through Du Bois, there's something philosophical, something very primal in knowledge in being able to know or be able to see or understand the world we live in that like, it allows you to explain, for example, James Baldwin. The way I kind of viewed it was I was like, I thought about it, I was like, in some ways you could say that there's a whole literature and a whole people mm -hmm. so defining of even America that is misunderstood and unexplainable by someone like Marx, for example. Like, how do you explain the poetry of Count Cullen or Langston Hughes, like the, like the liberatory language? Like, you know, how do you explain James Baldwin, the spirituals? How do you explain like even the blues or jazz? How do you explain the futuristic vision and the like, the, like the urgency and like feeling of freedom? How do you explain Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement? These, this mass movement of ordinary black people who like created this in, from Montgomery. How do you explain that? And for us, it's like, you can only explain it through Du Bois. And if you don't even want to use Du Bois's name, you can only explain it through this, I think this unpursued connection of philosophy between Du Bois and Hegel. If you know, I feel like I'm not explaining it well enough, but that's kind of how I viewed it. That's you bring up Baldwin because then I feel like it's not just about being able to understand, like it's not just being able to understand, for example, the black freedom movement and thus America and America's future. But it also, in, in my view, I feel like what free school is doing in pursuing this unpursued connection between Du Bois and Hegel and Du Bois, like what Du Bois is really trying to say and all the implications he was making about a new democracy and thus being able to explain what Baldwin meant by achieving a new nation. In some ways, it's also like, I feel like it's all within it is also a missing and unpursued philosophical explanation of even the anti-colonial movements of the world. Mm -hmm. like the emergence of a new like age of humanity. I feel like that's what, I feel like that's right. what free school is doing, which is also why you brought up quantum mechanics. Like this isn't just about social struggles. It's also about, it's a certain knowledge. It's a certain way of us knowing or understanding the world that even causes us to misunderstand or not know how to completely understand quant something like quantum physics. Like something so like something so revolutionary or like something so important to understand like, like literally like material, like literally like, um, I don't know, something in this world like yeah yeah um, like a scientific process or like a process in the world mm -hmm. and that's kind of how it's connecting where i was like this is why what this is why there's something very important that we're pursuing here yes. the boy it has to do with like philosophy and knowledge and sorry just to add to that jeremiah i know you also exploding i'm exploding too but only because what because um what you were saying, Emily, made me think about the immortal child concept again. Because I, immortal child. Yeah, the immortal child. Because that concept kind of flows. I mean by Du Bois. Du Bois. Du Bois is a mortal child. Only because, like, revolutionary, it is revolutionary. I 100% believe that um, what 
not only what we're doing is revolutionary and Du Bois being revolutionary, but that the struggle to achieve mm -hmm. and to like the struggle for ideas is revolutionary. Like I believe, right. I think that is right. true. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm only saying that also because people are able to evolve, people are able to think differently if like the, if people are, are like, you know, they're able to use ideas. They're able to, like you're saying, not treat Hegel or Aristotle as a god, mm -hmm. but use them mm -hmm. as tools mm -hmm. to progress mm -hmm. or struggle mm -hmm. for their humanity. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like I thought mm -hmm. about the immortal child mm -hmm. concept again, because I don't know if, you know, I don't, because I think that's also the one of those eternal questions, like mm -hmm. where will I go after I die? Like who, <laughs> you know and like what is the purpose of life and i think those are like eternal questions that people will always kind of struggle with and essentially you can achieve that answer based upon the struggle for liberation <laughs> and the struggle for freedom um you can't have it without it and it's like you said about ideology being or being connected into the ideological struggle is actually connecting yourself to the real world. Yeah. Connect and without it, you kind of like you said, Doc. Like you kind of get loose in a cycle yeah. of meaningless stuff to do. Yes. Yes. Um. Yes. Empty activism. Empty activism. Mm -hmm. Empty anything. Mm -hmm. um, empty lives. <laughs> but I think similarly with the immortal child, like to really have to have in your own soul the purpose of being able to do something to have the purpose at all to do anything is to believe in the immortal child. But if, but then like, how do you get to understanding what the immortal child is without Du Bois or without the struggle for with King or to know Hegel or to search for knowledge? Isn't the entire purpose of being able to grow is to learn? Like <laughs> what is, so I just wanted to say that because I think that Again, Du Bois helps us articulate in our time, young people especially, it yeah. helps young people articulate what is the desires that they wish to attain. Mm -hmm. Why do I do anything? What mm -hmm. is the purpose in which I'm here? Why do I study mm -hmm. anything? Mm -hmm. um, and so on. So I think it is revolutionary and it is very important. Oh, I, I also just wanted to say that our conversation so far has made me think about actually the 10th anniversary theme, like the theme of our 10th anniversary, recapturing knowledge and recapturing the revolutionary spirit for our times. And then also how important that vision statement was, because actually something that surprised me, even though it shouldn't, is how almost like the way that, for example, Alice described Black Reconstruction, I found myself coming back to the vision statement and being surprised by how right and then how strong a lot of the formulations and concepts we made in them were. Like specifically the concept of the new American people, the fourth American revolution, and then the, yeah, the emergence of a new people. Um, because like Emily, you describing this link between Hegel, Hegel and Du Bois, I think it's us moving in that same path or like in that same synthesis that led us to be able to create those formulations. And I don't, I don't remember who like created which formulation specifically, but I know that Doc, like you had talked about the idea of the new American people. I think you just mentioned it in conversation once that 
it partly emerged from your observations of how free school was transforming through the years. And that made me what that made me think of what you had said, Jeremiah, about this relationship or this dialectic between the concrete and the abstract. And Doc, I felt like for you to make that formulation of the emergence of a new American people, it took years of being in free school, seeing free school, like conceptualizing something out of it and then coming back with this new, like, yeah, this new knowledge category basically, which I think really explains this moment. Like everything that we've talked about with the possibility of a, of a new American revolution, like the possibility and the reality of a new American people before us, like it's just made so much sense to me. And I think it's important as, or like the reason that it's such a strong knowledge category is also because it's historically accurate. Like it captures all of the contradictions of the moment, but it also has a vision that would be enough to sustain like a broad movement through. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just really remarkable. Like that was on my mind a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also wanted to add, uh, like, yeah, I think this conversation is really clarifying. I was thinking mostly, like, you know, starting from, Doc, what you mentioned about beginnings, about, you know, how, like, if, like, unless we begin from the right positions, we cannot possibly, like, you know, hope to end in the right conclusions. And I was thinking about, like, what, uh, like, what um, everybody's talking about, about this question of, you know, ascending to the concrete as, as you put it, and how, like, you know, like when we talk about knowledge categories and so on, I think like, yeah, I mean, I also used to think of this as, you know, like this, like these are all abstract ideas. Like, you know, these are things we think about, but have no, like, you know, consequences. But I think what we're trying to, like, what's becoming clear is that, you know, ideas and especially where ideas begin and how they change with time, this is extremely important. And like, you know, this question of, like where Hegel began is not where we are beginning. I think this shows that like you know, we are at a different time and also the voice was at a different time when he is talking about Hegel's, uh, like you know, when he is using uh, like you know, Hegel's categories to understand um, like you know, the period of reconstruction and so forth and how like what we are talking about today is also, it is something similar, but we are at a different time in history today. And yeah, I was thinking that, you know, this question of beginning seems very important today because uh, I think at this point there is a lot like, you know, like as with the advance of technology and so on and so forth, a lot more people are in touch with these ideas a lot. Like, you know, these ideas are way more accessible to people now um, than it was a couple of hundred years back. And as this happens, there is a lot more effort to understand these. But at the same time, unless we are clear about where we begin from, we are bound to end up in, you know, like flawed um, understandings of Hegel and Du Bois and so on and so forth. I thought like this, like, you know, this sort of reflects why there are so many people studying Du Bois and Hegel and all of these people now, but they all inevitably come to these ideas which, you know, take us away from the essence of what they stood for and you know, what they were talking about. And um, yeah, like that. That's what I was thinking of. The other thing, uh, I think it's related, but uh, I can't exactly relate to it now. But like you know, this question of beginning, I was thinking of what we were reading a couple of weeks back. Uh, the first few pages, I think, of 
uh, of the doctrine of being. And, you know, but he also talks about this question of like when we try to understand where the beginning of knowledge is, there seems to be this contradiction which you mentioned, um, like in between the immediate and the mediation. And he says that, like, you know, these are not like, you know, these are contradictions which, like, you know, like there is no such thing which does not have both of these. Like, you know, there is the immediate and the mediate in everything. And this contradiction comes up only because, like, you know, we don't clearly understand, like, why we know something or, you know, how we know something. We, like, we can't re really um, relate how we know something to the content of what we know. And that this lies in the, in, you know, how, like, this contradiction comes up. But I was thinking of this because, you know, this is also a question of the beginning of where we understand things. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, well, I wanted to add to what people were saying, but also read some of the comments. There's a long discussion. Um, primarily between Danny Jacobs and BK on YouTube, which I'm not going to get all into because I think they're also having like a conversation. Between Danny Jacobs and who? And uh, just someone named BK on YouTube. I don't know their full name. Okay. Um, but so I, I, I'll, get, I'll get to the comments first and then also add something that I was thinking about in relation to what others are saying. But um, Jake, Jake Harris, AG, I don't know who that is, Emil Palmier, Sophie, um, Nabila, they all say good morning. Um, Nabila says, hey, Dr. Magna, greetings. And then, yeah, there's a long discussion between Danny Jacobs and BK about what is meant by abstract and concrete, which I think is important to talk about. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to get into all of it. People can read the discussion as it took place on the YouTube chat, but um, just Danny, Danny raised, I think, a question or a concern that he had. Let me try to find it. Um, where he said, he said, I'm worried that concrete being opposed to metaphysical is being used synonymously for um, empirical or even, quote, real versus metaphysical or abstract meaning and thought um, or ideas. Saying, implying that thought or ideas are not real, which I think is important because I think, like when, yeah, when we talk about the real or the mm -hmm. concrete, I feel like Du Bois' starting place is the whole field of human action and human activity, right? Mm -hmm. And philosophy is like philosophy and the movement and ideas are all part of that totality of human mm -hmm. action, and um, and I feel like you see it really clearly when he describes you know, those chapters in Black Reconstruction, like the coming of the Lord, where the way that he describes the enslaved becoming free, that this is both like a concrete, like it's like a concrete economic event, but it's also a concrete philosophical event too. In the extent that it's like, like what they're doing is also philosophical activity. Like this, this kind of, like the way that they are, Kind of using religion as a kind mm -hmm. of philosophical move towards freedom and yes. what freedom actually like means in its concrete concreteness mm -hmm. i think is really important um so yeah i appreciated danny's comment but I, it also reminded me of um i was looking at you know freedom ways the journal that du bois co-founded with um I, I think it was esther and james jackson 
Um, and, and Paul Robeson, by the way. And Robeson, yeah. Um, they had a issue that was specifically devoted to Du Bois. And in one of them, there was a piece by, I think his name is Eugene C. Holmes from Howard University, where he talks about Du Bois as a philosopher. And I don't know if I agree with everything that this guy is that uh, Holmes was saying, but he says one of the things that he says is that quote literally and historically there had not been any philosophies of freedom up until Du Bois, who made freedom his basic theme in his poetry and writing, in his sociology and in his history. He felt that when the slaves expressed a reaction to American reality, they seized upon the pessimistic symbols and images of Christianity the only body of literature allowed to them and charged them those symbols with a concealed energy and optimism whose meaning was revealed on the plane of action through the countless revolts and escapes that marked this period of American history. When the abolition of Northern slavery made Negro expression on a higher level, a possibility, the free Negroes of the North made an alliance with the rising middle class and they named their first publication, Freedom's Journal. Mm -hmm. um, and then later on, uh, Holmes says, the philosophically untrained refer to Du Bois, quote, the old man, as either an idealist or as a realist. However, Dr. Du Bois's philosophical training and his turning towards the tools of scientific method in the social sciences led him inexorably to materialism and to construct models as a scientific historian and socio sociologist. The materialist draws his inspiration and chooses his models from the largest and most obvious fields of science such as stellar or the evolution of stars, the study of the suppression, um, the field of biological evolution, or in Du Bois's case, the actions of human beings. This included the movement of social, social institutions, the study of the suppression of the African slave trade, the Philadelphia Negro, the laws of capitalist development into imperialism, and all of the actual transformations of, of national life. Mm. Um, the, the philosopher-sociologist Du Bois always regarded his methodology as embracing the equal rights of human beings to strive to live, and it was in that sense that his materialism was expressed in its, sympathy in its sympathies for a democratic ethos. Within such a humanistic context, peace and not war was the only true good because it became a reflection of universal justice for the poor of the earth, and it included the aspirations of the enslaved of all nations for its goals. Um, and the, the, yeah, there's a lot more. It's, it's an interesting essay considering Du Bois as a philosopher. But um, that was actually a question I had, which is, I know that the word materialist gets used in many different ways. Um, but I was just curious, like, Doc, what you're like, how, like, how you would describe Du Bois in relation to that tradition of like materialist philosophy, um, I think kind of centered, like anchored to Marx, I feel like, but um yeah because i i don't know like there's so many ways that you could describe Du Bois. like he is like would you associate with him like a humanist tradition the materialist tradition are those things opposed or is Du Bois kind of a synthesis of many things um and it's more accurate to just call him a Du Boisian, you know like a Du Boisian philosopher um, <laughs> but yeah that, that was a question i had just e even in response to like how people at the time of Du Bois's death were trying to make sense of what was Du Bois's contribution to American intellectual life, but especially to philosophy emanating from the American historical experience, and in particular, the experience of um, the Black proletariat striving mm -hmm. for freedom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just you know, quickly, without taking too much time, I think the key thing is to understand Du Bois's anchor 
in sociology as he conceived it and as he practiced it. Because, and I understand, you know, the concrete abstract uh, difference is very important. And again, uh, Danny, I just, I, we need more time to go into that. Um, uh, ideas become concrete, actually concrete, to the extent that they become social, that they become the people's ideas, and they become a part of the people's struggle. I think Du Bois, in studying human behavior sociologically, could not, pardon me, but see their beliefs and their values as, and this is, I agree with Danny, as concrete manifestations of their striving for freedom. Here I agree with Holmes. The first great American philosopher of freedom is Du Bois. And I would also add on there Angela Davis in her work um, where she um, uh, takes her schooling, interestingly, uh, uh, in Germany and Adorno and then Marcuse and attempts to develop a philosophy of freedom. Uh, of course, the weak link is the absence of Du Bois, I think, in her work. Nonetheless, she parallels Du Bois in that the, the uh, engine, the driving engine of black philosophy is the category freedom. However, and this is Du Bois, and this is why Hegel and Du Bois, uh, Science of Logic and Black Reconstruction, are so indispensable, is the categories of knowledge and the concept, the category of the black proletariat. That is the game changer. Uh, that is the game changer. And uh, I'll, still, I'll stop there. I don't want to talk too much, but I think we know we could go further into that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like we're also um, in the Indian context, we were also reading about this philosopher Iqbal. And there are all, all these thinkers who are really, I mean, I just, you like reading all these brilliant thinkers, you realize like the problem of cultural nationalism that they don't have this deep philosophical understanding. So they're just part of the same Western paradigm, even though that they say that they reject it. And I just wanted to read this part from The Dark Princess, uh, the first chapter, The Exile, that I think, I thought it just encapsulates everything we're saying about the concrete versus the metaphysical and the historical. Um, and this is at the this is at the dinner party scene where um, the doctor Matthew Towns, the black doctor, is encountering this um, uh, movement of darker peoples from the darker nations, the leaders of the darker nations, um, but who don't necessarily believe in the people. Um, so he says. So the the princess says, "You assume then," said the princess at last, "that the mass of the workers of the world can rule as well as be ruled." Yes, or rather can work as <clears throat> well as be worked, can live as well as be kept alive. America is teaching the world one thing and only one thing of real value. And that is that the ability and capacity for culture is not the hereditary monopoly of a few, 
but the widespread possibility for the majority of mankind if they only have a decent chance in life. The Chinaman spoke. If Mr. Town's assumption is true, and I believe it is, and recognized, as sometime it must be, it will revolutionize the world. It will revolutionize the world, smiled the Japanese, but not today. Nor this cycle, growled the Arab, nor the next. And so in secula seculorum, laughed the Egyptian. Well, said the little Chinese lady, the unexpected happens. And Matthew added ruefully, it's about all that does happen. Um, and I, I just thought that was so interesting because it is about all that does happen. See, this is a very, it's not all that will happen or all that has happened, no. all that does happen. And here we're, see, that's the so, Du Bois' the sociologist. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, wow, all that does happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the concrete manifestations of the people, just this, this supreme confidence in the people, you know, and their strivings and the belief that it will and does and is making history, um, which is, I feel that's also where the free school starts, where most philosophical endeavors don't. Um, just really deep belief in the people. Yeah. Can I just say something? This is very important. And I'm so happy, you know, people don't know, Dark Princess is, Du Bois is what, third novel? And my favorite, I think yours too. <laughs> uh, but I'm so happy you read that because that is such a deep concept, all that does happen. Because, you know, uh, often philosophers get uh, waylaid in all that has happened. How well did Hegel explain his time or ideas of his time. You know, it is not this idea of explaining all that is happening because that is the concrete in its great complexity. That's what that is gesturing to. It is so such a beautiful phrase, mm. I would yeah. yeah uh, I have a question. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nathan. Oh, yeah, it's cool. Um, so I guess in looking at uh, philosophy sort of and like the philosophy of like Du Bois, uh, looking at it like kind of like the study, um, I guess, of like human, human beings and human relations and how that moves history, uh, I guess seeing like how Du Bois uses the... Um, the category of the black worker as like a vehicle for uh, human beings to see themselves in that. Uh, and I guess that struggle to, um, what was I gonna say? Um, I guess the struggle to, for one, like I guess free humanity from slavery, um, but also to free humanity from the assumptions of white supremacy and empire and allow new knowledge to come from that, from humanity to define itself uh, uh, beyond those assumptions. And so I guess um, saying that uh, Du Bois and, and Black Reconstruction is still necessary because empire still exists. Right, interesting. Um, yeah, and all of that, but 
I don't know what my question was actually. Um, <laughs> That's it's beautifully put. Yeah. I think that the, well, not let me. I don't want to talk. But, I also wanted to uh, go back to something you said, which was very clarifying, Doc. Um, this this idea that in order to know the world, you have to be part of changing the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's how it's it's a simple, it's a very deep idea, I think, because uh, you're basically saying that you can only know the world in motion, like by being part yes. of it, by understanding how you know what the motive forces are, what is the dynamics. And this means you have to be part of the ideological struggle in order to know the world, right? And this, this, I mean, I was just thinking of how, you know, leftists nowadays, they claim to both know and speak for the working class without having any contact with the working people, without understanding where the you know, battleground for them is right now. And also I was thinking about like the subaltern and post-colonial schools of historians who basically they have figured out everything that's wrong with, you know, the so-called oppressed, you know, everywhere. But they are like, they are able to do that without ever engaging in the ideological struggle. And they're able to do that whilst collaborating with empire, which is the biggest, you know, which is the biggest purveyor of, you know, injustice towards the oppressed everywhere. So these ideas, this idea that, you know, you can only know the world by being part of changing the world was very clarifying and it also this thing about starting from the concrete you know not getting bogged down in the abstractions of philosophy but you know it's a ascension to the concrete which really is a very beautiful concept my mind is blown but this also made me concretely understand the difference between you know the free school way of reading hegel but philosophy in general as opposed to other you know groups that we've seen uh, uh, events or seminars uh, from where, you know, it's very good that they, they've read, obviously read Hegel and Marx and Lenin in detail and can, you know, quote, quote freely from everywhere and probably, you know, or, you know, they have some understanding of what knowledge was produced by these figures. But then the question is, what do you do with that knowledge? Do you bend it towards you know, the struggle in our times, you know, based in the concrete realities of our times, do you bend it towards, you know, the broadest measure of justice for people? Or is it just, does it remain in that sort of abstract understanding of what knowledge, what knowing means, or, you know, what, yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, so that, that, that was very clarifying that this is the essential difference. You're reading philosophy to change the world. Yes. Um, um, and I also think this, okay, I'm just going to throw it in there. This is not well thought out, but this idea that to know the world, you have to be part of his change. I think it also helps explain the paradox of reality that quantum mechanics poses because like not explain, but it's related to it because it's, it's a way of saying that, you know, your knowledge of reality involves your interaction with the dynamic, uh, component of reality. So. Yes. That that was fun to think about. <laughs> it is. Um, I I I've been having a conversation in my head this entire time, and I wanted to throw it out there. 
You know, one of the first things that I learned from the free school like over three years ago was that there are there are certain truths. There's there are some things that are true and then there are some things that are not true. There are some things that are right and then there are some things that are wrong. And as I went along my uh, you know, educational journey in a way, I read Gandhi and he said that um, the truth is within us and it is in all of us. And even though the truth may appear differently to different people, it is, it is like the countless different leaves on the same tree. And so one of the first things, like I said, I learned was that there is a right and wrong. And now I think we're moving into, we're trying to learn about you know, Hegel's dialectic and about how humanity and its history is, is you know, this constant process of evolutionary change where you have an idea and then the opposite of that idea coexists and then you eventually move on to a new synthesis where both of them, um, where, both, where the idea and its opposite exists and you know, transcends into a new reality. And for a long time, I used to think that these two ideas in my head contradict each other, that there is a truth and then there is also the truth and its contradiction existing together. But then, you know, today's conversation really helped me because when you said that we cannot start from the abstract, when you start wrong, your entire idea is wrong. You have to start from the concrete. And when I thought of that, it made sense, you know. You, when you start wrong, all of this devolves into identity politics and all of this devolves into my truth and your truth and my right and your right. But then you start to think about the way Hegel, not really Hegel, but Du Bois considered um, the truth and what Gandhi considered the truth. And it, it, it suddenly makes a lot of sense that, yeah, there, there are certain rights and wrongs, but you cannot exclude the possibility that an idea and its opposite can coexist. I think it, it, it really depends on where you start thinking from. And this is, this is something that I've, that, that's been playing in my head for the last hour and a half. Uh, and, you know, this, this conversation, I, I think I'm moving towards a little bit of clarity on this, on, on this subject. Yeah, hence the necessity of dialectics. So yeah, hence the necessity. Just, yeah, not so much like, well, your truth is over here, mine's over there, and that's just, that's two realities. The whole point is we're starting from one reality. Uh -huh. and, and then you have to, um, yeah, like a synthesis must be found, but that's why the antithesis, the false, or, the, or like you, you come to, yeah, that's what you're just saying. It's also just clicking in place because there's probably a way somebody has tried to make this um, justify 
like a sort of well they can kind of coexist the opposite mm -hmm. and then be comfortable that, that, that that's not the whole point of a contradiction in synthesis because then you stop there then you stop at uh, the, the thesis and the antithesis part and you never get to a synthesis I think if there's anything as you know just the free school the way we are emerging and evolving on our on uh, as ourselves you know it seems to me um, that our ideological and philosophical theoretical work is all about synthesis you know and an emergence of you know another way to talk about synthesis and I think uh, Hegel talked in these terms is to talk about things as totalities, mm. not as disconnected or dis disassociated parts. And part of what the strength of dialectical reason, pardon me, dialectical reasoning is it is always emphasized when you, when you talk about this unity of opposites, it is a way of getting at totalities, things as wholes, not as parts, but parts as part of a whole. Uh, now, as an abstract, I'm gonna shut my mouth. As an abstract category or abstract methodology of knowing, dialectics as an abstract uh, practice, of knowing is insufficient because abstractions alone cannot capture totalities. Although, you know, one of the greatest things of Hegel's uh, discovery or rediscovery of dialectics is his, you know, uh, pushing towards understanding totalities or things in holes. And that is, and that doesn't mean just because you assert it that you understand it. You have to continue to work, to do the research, the concreteness and all of that. But in just one last thing, to see the content from a, from a sociological standpoint or historical standpoint, to see the contradiction in all situations. Mm. If you don't, you see things statically. Yeah. And if you see them statically, you can easily go towards things like settler colonialism. That's a static analysis. And we in the free school, by the way, this is very much present in black thought. It's in Martin Luther King, it's in Baldwin, it's in Du Bois. This idea of movement, things are in a constant process of change. I mean, it's all over Martin Luther King's uh, thinking. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I, I would say that and by the way, I know King and I know uh, Du Bois both studied Hegel 
in different ways at different times. But, but you know, the idea that all history is the history of social change. Marx said that all previous history is a history of the class struggle. I think enlarging upon this, people such as Martin Luther King or Du Bois would say that all history is the history of the struggle for freedom, the history of the struggle for social change. And I agree completely with Magnan reading from The Dark Princess. Du Bois, speaking through Matthew Towns, the character Matthew Towns, always had ultimate confidence in the people. Mm. If I could just say something about that, that scene that you read from Magna, the others, except the dark princess who was a princess from India who moves to the United States and becomes Matthew Towns, the African-American's lover and cotton intimate colleague and comrade. The rest of the group, this elite group of uh, that would free the darker races, except black folk. Everybody could be freed and everybody could make a contribution to global freedom except black folk, except the, the princess herself uh, and Matthew Towns. And that's why that point, that, that way you read that, uh, could you read that one, that, that phrase, uh, that was a phrase about history? Meg, would you be kind enough do you remember it? The in the in what I read already. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe I'll just read it. Yeah. You assume then the prince said the prince, and also this is after, um, like yeah, like you said, they don't believe in the ability of black people, but especially the darker masses. Yes. To rule, and then Matthew sings. Um, he sings, "Let my people go." Um, the the old Negro spiritual, yeah. and they're all just amazed. Um, and so he, uh, so the princess says, "You assume then," said the princess, "that the mass of the workers of the world can rule as well as be ruled." Yeah, she's saying Matthew believes that. Yeah. Yes, and, and Matthew says, "Yes, or rather, can work as well as be worked, can live as well as be kept alive." America is teaching the world one thing and only one thing of real value, and that is that ability and capacity for culture is not the hereditary monopoly of a few, but the widespread possibility for the majority of mankind if they only have a decent chance in life. The Chinaman spoke. If Mr. Towns' assumption is true, and I believe it is, and recognized, as sometime it must be, it will revolutionize the world. It will revolutionize the world, smiled the Japanese, but not today, nor this sickly, growled the Arab, nor the next, and so in secula seculorum, laughed the Egyptian. Well, said the little Chinese lady, the unexpected happens. And Matthew added ruefully, it's about all that does happen. All that does happen. Yeah. That's the concrete. All, and that is what has to be grasped. All that does happen. Not and see, and, and if I if I could just say one thing. See, a lot of times when one has a historical approach to philosophy and sociology, one can be accused of being a teleologist. Mm -hmm. In other words, the what is happening 
is determined by what the future will be, you know? And what Du Bois is saying, Du Bois is not a teleologist. He is not that everything will, everything that will happen is already determined by the future. Right. Du Bois is saying that humanity determines what the future will be mm -hmm. yeah. by what it does. And this is so very important because in a lot of ways, the Hegelian dialectic, and this is part of Marx's critique of Hegel, that it said that the moment is already determined by what the ultimate future will be. Uh, and that was a, uh, a very abstract, it was an abstraction, an idealism in the sense that the future is pulling us all along. And Du Bois is making the argument that humanity, by what it does, mm. is determining what we will become, that things emerge from a, a real life world, as, as it were, by a practice of unity of struggle. This is so profound. And by the way, Du Bois is also insisting upon the democracy of ideas. Mm. Yeah that ideas belong to humanity, to ordinary people. It, it's such a, a wonderful thing. I'm reminded of some of uh, our members of the free school who are hospital workers and other workers who make it very clear their great interest in ideas and culture and music and not only their interest, but their knowledge of these things. Uh, which is, a, I, I think, a confirmation of what Du Bois is arguing. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. Can I just add something I forgot to say yeah. earlier was um, Michelle had brought up the, the concept of the new American people from the 10th anniversary. And something that I was thinking about was what is the relationship between the black proletariat and the new American people? Well. But that's also a question of what is the nature of the work that we do in the free school in some ways, because um, I feel like there's a way that you can misinterpret when we talk about things like the new American people and say, oh, like you're moving away from black people, right? But actually this idea of a new American people could be seen as the completion of the process of becoming that we see in the black proletariat and that the completion of this category, but also of this movement is, can only, it's like the logic of it is only to move towards the totality, mm -hmm. which is basically the totality of the American, of American people. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that part of what is intriguing about this idea of a new American people is that it, in the same way that Du Bois talks about the black proletariat and how you, I think the doc you described as like the proletariat and it's becoming is that when we talk about the new American people, it speaks to exactly a process of becoming. It speaks to something which is in the process of being created and being formed, but it's not yet complete. It's not yet completely brought into, um, <coughs> into our like social reality. Yeah. And I think the reason why still we stand upon this idea and this concept or this category in becoming is because to 
be able to articulate th that idea and to bring it to people is to, in some ways, like it facilitates that very process, or we hope that it facilitates that very process of becoming. And that it gives, I think, why I feel like it's so exciting is that it gives like American people everywhere an idea of like, oh, this is what we are striving towards. Like this is the free school way of articulating what it is that the American people are striving towards and what they can strive towards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's important. It's not just that we're describing things, but we're also, we want to articulate, yeah, like a vision, I think as Michelle was saying. Um, and this is the contribution that we hope to make. And it's something that's also, yeah, like as, as people have been saying, it's also rooted in like how we interact with the world, how we interact with the city of Philadelphia. Um, and it's not, it's not divorced from that, that context and that social, um, I guess, social science that we are involved in. But yeah, I was just thinking about like, yeah, like how do we relate this concept of the black proletariat to like the new American people? And I think it's not a move away from the black freedom struggle, but actually a move towards the completion of. Yes, the there's black a question. There is a, to, to, if I can just say, to a new whole, to a new totality. We, we see logically and scientifically the emergence of a new totality, a new whole to replace a, uh, uh, an incomplete totality. So in other words, our thinking is towards a completion as things towards a new totality, towards a new whole. Let's say it doesn't turn out the way we think it could. Well, but isn't that science? Because we're also talking about probability. I think, I mean, we could be as right as rain and still things not turn out the way we would like. I mean, given the Biden administration and it's provoking of nuclear war with everybody, or at least with nuclear powers, you know, um, uh, so on and so forth. So I, I think we could, that's the way I would put it, man. But I agree with the way you formulated Jeremiah very, very much, man. Yeah, this whole conversation, like the totality has been not so shocking to me what you had said to initiate it. It's interesting because it's still coming back to the same struggle of ideas. Like, I think there's a, at the point which we can understand that people are struggling with these ideas with themselves. Like, who am I if I am like a trans woman? Like, how do I fit ideologically <laughs> in, in the society? Right. What do I want out of the society, et cetera? Or if I'm like, and there's so many types of people. And I think, and I was thinking about how like identity politics is kind of like dead now. And like, you know, there's not that, well, in a different way, maybe, uh, this like the arguments about queer politics and whatnot are mostly based in universities and are only attributed to um, a small group of people. But it isn't as like you had kind of said it earlier. Like it's not at the same uh, like pe like people to people basis. Like I am this because it's not that many fierce arguments. But then it's like interesting as to why, because at the end of the day, we're still in a country which 
or is America, which is completely in the midst of a collapse and not functioning for American people, period. Mm -hmm. Working class period have been, the working class people have been devastated mm -hmm. and still not being educated. And there's just like these, there's like overall, like the situation that we're in kind of overrides like the ruling class, like ideological pursuit for, you know, justification and whatnot, because like, okay, Trump, even if he um, should be canceled, cannot really be canceled, he will still come back. Yeah, because the, the phenomena that is represented, the concrete phenomena, right. you know, I'm, I'm sorry. No, 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 but I'm only saying that to say that the, that the concrete situation calls for a different set of um, assumptions, assumptions that's ideological right. assumptions. That's right. That's and the right. ruling class also that's is trying right. to, that's right. like, you know, engage mm -hmm. with that in a new way, whether that be with AI or whatever it is, but they're trying to recalibrate. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh -huh. But also, no, 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 because I'm right with you. But also, it was interesting, Jeremiah, what you're saying reminded me of Baldwin and like the whole mirror to society mm -hmm. aspect, like I'm a mirror. Um, and like the same conversation about how human beings are connected or, you know, there's, it's all in came, like you're saying, doc, like it's all involved in like the world house. Um, and just like, and even like the, I ha have a dream speech that like, came mm -hmm. into my mind mm -hmm. about this question of totalities. Mm -hmm. Like what does it mean mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. an, entire mm -hmm. group of American people as the American people to achieve the nation. Yep. Um yep. But without like those great ideas or like the ideas that revolutionize or transform yourself, which is also Baldwin's point. Like you can become you can be, you don't have to be white essentially. You don't have to be stuck in the past. Right. Um, right but be right, completely right. and utterly present. Um, which is also what Matthew, what like your example with the um, character Matthew is also saying, it does happen. Um, like, it, and you know, so I'm just thinking about how the philosophy and the ideology of Du Bois brings us to the present, but also helps us consider all all things, that, you know, at the same time. Like, um, and that like the totality or like the question of totalities isn't something that is above. Or is an nope. abstraction, nope. but is something that also, in a constant basis, you know, kind of moves. Um, like it's the same thing with the point of why ideology or the struggle for ideological clarity is important. It's not for the fact of like the sake of having the right thing to say, but like having the persona, like the person, like in your heart, your belief system, the way that you see the world and the way that you do things. Like even, this is why like the whole thing of physics can change, the entire things, everything could change. If the person also believes and sees something different or is understanding a different way to ask the question of what mm -hmm. if, you know, these other questions about life and history. So that's why it's important because if people are unable to ask the questions, they're unable to articulate what they see, they're not able to move forward with society. They can't build society. Um, point. Can I just say something, just building, mm -hmm. just quickly, mm -hmm. you know, and that 
if anything, well, I guess synthesis, but the other thing is that in the free school, we see, and it's King, it's Du Bois, it's Baldwin, who we, you know, see as central, and really Robeson, the concept is always there of completing, completion, new totalities, newness. If you move away from that, as most social scientists and oh, yeah. academics have, there is no future. Right, 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 right. Except I would say it's so ironic that the nation of Islam, yeah. you know, <laughs> have, I know, uh, Nathan and Caleb were at Mosque Maryam a couple few weeks ago. And I was asking Caleb about, because I've never heard uh, uh, Minister Ishmael Muhammad speak, you know, but he's, he's, I know he's a very impressive person, but almost implicit in the logic of their narrative is the bending towards completion completion. And so it's so interesting. I was telling somebody yesterday uh, that the nation of Islam is growing more rapidly among Asians than almost any other population. Because, you know, it, it, and I think what people in the free school have seen in the nation, what the nation of Islam sees in the free school is that bending towards completion, towards totality, towards a new people. And I, I agree with the way you put it, Jeremiah, that you cannot talk about completion without understanding the black proletariat now and in its history. And this is that category, the black proletariat, and then grafting on to our understanding of that Hegel's dialectics. I think we're looking at powerful methods, powerful ideas that are so in touch with the concrete aspirations of the people. This is, I think we, I'll I just say it, that's all I wanted to say. We, I just understood something for sort of like, not necessarily the first time, but it just clicked for me, which is what we were talking about with totalities. And it's not the first time we're talking about it, but I was just telling Shumbarta Michelle that I think this is why the concept of like the Afro-Asian reconstitution of humanity is terribly important because it is talking about the, I mean, like it's what we've been saying, like completing an incomplete totality, but then how that also has so many implications for the American people to become complete as well. And um, I know we're still working to flesh this out, but I do think that um, just even how like, earlier we were formulating, like how is it that we're relating so many of these concepts that I think free school so far has been pretty uniquely positioned to um, put forward. Um, to one another, and it is sort of like, okay, so the black proletariat, the working class, the new American people, but then also this Afro-Asian reconstitution of humanity, and how does that relate back to America, but also the world, and I think just this idea of totality, um, it seems really simple in some ways, like everything is connected, but in some ways it's also pretty game-changing, <laughs> and so I'm just 
gonna be thinking about this a lot. Um, I, think, I was just writing about in my notes, sort of like when we were talking about the nation of Islam and their bending towards like completion. Like Robeson, you're told like there couldn't have been a man who was trying to be more complete in some ways of a human being, but then becoming like ideas, people's, both, but also mm, your struggles, everything together. But he was also, I think, in the as um, some of us in the Bendel reading group are reading his um, "Here I Stand" uh, memoir, um, was trying to signal almost to the American people that this is the way things are going to go, or like this is the way the American people will complete themselves in a mm-hmm. uh, in such a prophetic way, but not necessarily in a in a way that he really embodied. I'm just sort of saying things that I think we've been sort of. Um, thinking about for a while, but it just feels so, it just rings so much, it's so true because of the conversation we're having right now. Wait, okay, can I, can I add one thing? <laughs> yes. um, no, this conversation is also making me think a lot about like the relationship between truth and knowledge and how, I, th- I guess this process of the discovery of truth because for, mm-hmm. I think for me at least, um, that's what kind of intuitively gave free school or a lot of the thinkers that we look to in free school a certain authority is that i could see that intellectually and morally there is a truth in what they had achieved or what they had expressed and mm-hmm. and yeah i guess what i'm thinking about is how it's interesting that truth can be expanded so much through knowledge but then also through so much time or after so much time like because prophecy. yeah because for example Du Bois writing Black Reconstruction or Du Bois writing World in Africa that was in some cases centuries after initially what had happened but what we're now seeing in the 21st century is that that for example trialectic formulation of what was happening after the civil war with the emergence of the black proletariat is the most apt and generates the most like concrete and also accurate possibilities for what America can still fulfill than any other interpretation of that period. But yeah, once again, what's interesting is that that truth was not necessarily established until over a hundred years, I think. Oh no, no. I mean, less than a hundred years, but at least decades after that period had actually passed. Um, Yeah, and so I I think part of what I'm saying is that this also clarifies for me why we unequivocally mm-hmm. return and then establish our basis in Du Bois, mm-hmm. as well as our basis and our study in Hegel. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was actually, it's, it's, yeah. it's more clarifying for me why we're returning to Hegel now. And I believe, you know, and I'm also really excited about our forthcoming study of Hegel because mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just mm-hmm. we're developing a certain we're expanding a certain repository of truth and knowledge that is going to serve the forward historical development of this country for a long time to come, and I really believe that, mm-hmm. and I really see us situated in that exact Du Boisian legacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a this this is a little mm-hmm. bit. Of no, but I think it has to do with when we were talking about philosophy earlier. But um, y- yesterday I was at that bar in South Philly 
where they have had a lot of avant-garde musicians playing yes. abroad and elsewhere. And this was a group that I hadn't really heard of, but they were they were from Richmond, Virginia. And a lot, it was five different musicians in that group. And of the musicians they had they had studied and worked with, um, uh, Gil Scott Heron was a big one. Um, I'm, I'm already forgetting them, Weldon Irvine, but like Gil Scott Heron was a big one. And then there's someone else, but it's just slipping my mind. Um, and what really shocked me actually was how, like the language that they were using when they were playing. I mean, you could already feel what they were expressing through the music, but then wow. I think this was a, a little bit of the Gil Scott Heron influence, but sometimes yeah. they would come up to the mic and I would think of that winter in America moment when Gil Scott Heron is like philosophically, like psychologically, like America's <laughs> in a long winter. <laughs> like the, the lead saxophonist talked just like yeah. that. But the funny thing is when he wow. went up to the mic, he would make very, very succinct statements like the meaning of life is love. Oh yeah, Pharaoh Sanders was the other big one that they were coming. Wow. He he played with, he was very close with Pharaoh Sanders. Wow. And then he would also make statements like time, 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 don't let it slip away, time. And I was like, is he talking about Hegel? <laughs> like, no, but it was so deep. Yeah, and then like real. everything or, or there would be another song that was entirely about truth or entirely about purpose. Yeah. And yeah. I think all of connecting that to our conversation this mm -hmm. morning just took me back to also what Shantanu and Shimbarto you had brought up, but this thing of like, what is your philosophical origin and yeah. what language and what world will you be describing, but then also basically acting out into existence when your yes. philosophical basis is one versus another. Um, Mm -hmm. because that common language it was really just like that he didn't they didn't need to say the words but by the time they were saying the words I was just like this is this is what we see like you know yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so it was interesting mm -hmm. yeah. wow. I was gonna say in our conversation it reminds me I actually recently I've been thinking a lot about Korea and Vietnam and like the bombings of both of those two countries and how both for Ho Chi Minh and Kim Il-sung, they essentially talked to their people and said, like, we are facing an existential crisis where we are being bombed. But you know what? What happens? We will rebuild our nation. Like, we will rebuild our country. And the reason why I've been thinking to them about, about Korea and Vietnam is because in some ways, we're facing a crisis in this in this society where um, it's both ideological but even physical in terms of what we see around us. And I think to what it is that like as free school, we want to say to people in the sense, in the ways that Ho Chi Minh and Kim Il-sung was able to speak to people in order to essentially raise their capacity and say like, we can rebuild this nation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the reason why I say that is because is because of this connection of philosophy and ideas to okay. concrete reality. Mm -hmm. uh, like, what are these ideas? What are these things that we are saying that can uplift the American people to come together to rebuild our country? Um, and this is also the idea that we're saying of like achieving our country, building our country. Um, and 
I think that's also like what grounds me in these conversations that we're having, which is like, you know, we talk in free school on Saturdays, but there's also so much that we're trying to do throughout the week to continue to build these ideas, but also to talk to people, to understand where people are at. What are people striving for? Like, what are the questions that they're asking? Like, what do they hope to do and achieve? Yeah. Um, and it encourages me every time, like we're able to reach someone and talk to someone and like realize how right we are. Um, not like, not just in the sense of like, we're trying to be right for like being like right sake, but like in the idea of like, in the sense that this is what we're marching together towards. You know, whenever we meet, like I mean, on Eddie's birthday, like we went to the cigar lounge and we ended up talking to this man and we talked about, you know, Trump and Obama and like what we thought. And, he, you know, he was saying like, you know, they want us to hate each other. But the thing is, like, we need to talk to each other. We need to know each other. And this was like some random man we ran into. And in that moment, as we were sitting there, I was like, we're like in free school. We're getting it so right. Like people want to talk to each other. Um, yeah, and to talk, yeah, talk to each other about ideas, about human relations, about even like um, international democracy, yeah. like this idea that we're trying to talk about, like on a world scale. Because um, he even talked about, like at first he was like, "Don't you think Obama is cool?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> and then he was like, "He was like, oh, you know what? You're right." And then like, he, I guess he didn't say you're right. <laughs> talking about Libya. Um, what else was it? Like Syria. He was like, yeah, like, you know why Gaddafi, like why they kill Gaddafi? And we were like, what? We just met this man. Um, but because he knew, because he was like, they killed, they had to kill Gaddafi because he was doing something so important, which was he was bringing Africa back to gold. Yeah, he said that. Yeah, and we had just been talking about it the week before, and I didn't know that, like, I was much less educated than him, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think that's why, that's why, like, in this conversation of philosophy, like, I think all of us were always thinking about, like, the people that we're talking to, the right. people we're trying to understand. Um, but, but, yeah, back to, like, Ho Chi Minh and Kim Il-sung, like, I think about that a lot, like, what is the nation that we're trying to become? And even in terms of, like, a new American people, like, it has to be rooted in the Black tradition, because in these moments of crises in American history, um, there's an echo from someone. In these moments in American history, it has been the ideas of, or the Black proletariat and its ideas and leadership that have been able to create new conditions and new dynamics in society for people to struggle. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., he was able to speak and actually reach people, like people felt like there was a higher sky to strive towards. Um, and I think it's in this, this, and that's why I think in our times as well, like in a new American people, like what is that essence? What is that essence that we must um, move closer towards? That's right. I think that's also why like Doc, you're always saying like with Trump, he like what he's missing is King and that is right. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Oh, go ahead, Eddie. Uh, you sure? All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you guys had me thinking about 
You know, what is the, uh, uh, the, the some, there's something so creative uh, uh, about a dialectical relationships and the concept of negation as something that can propel history forward, advance the people in our country uh, and advance our relationships to other countries. Uh, and so, you know, I, at least my understanding uh, of, of what uh, Marxism and other uh, bodies of thought that say uh, the history is the history of the class struggle. Uh, I, you know, I see the dynamic between, I guess, the proletariat, normal people, and then like the, the oppressors uh, and then negation being, you know, we're going to overcome them. Uh, and, but, but like that, uh, we've seen that at least that, that can only take you so, that, and that's not a bad idea. That's that we, we got to probably do some of that uh, against the ruling class. Uh, but that can only take you so far. The, the example being of like China uh, and, and the Cultural Revolution, uh, them trying to instigate class struggle, tearing the country apart. Uh, or and, and then North Korea, you know, once once North Korea was was basically secure, they're like, how how are we going to how are we going to evolve ourselves as a, as a people? What is what is going to propel history forward if we're not going to struggle uh, internally? And so there's this cr creative relationship that has to happen that propels history forward uh, and advances uh, advances the country, advances the people. Uh, that that is a a struggle for freedom. Uh, and uh, the, I think that we are, we, we're so fortunate that we have an, uh, uh, some examples to follow of there uh, uh, through the black freedom struggle and even from reconstruction of negating uh, uh, something uh, towards freedom uh, uh, and, and that, that being uh, negating slavery at some, at some period. And then uh, in, in, the, in the civil, in civil rights movement, this, this, this terrible animosities uh, amongst uh, uh, the people of our country. Uh, and so, uh, in, uh, st studying studying uh, North Korea, for example, the, uh, that that's a beautiful example of of what this dynamic can be uh, that that can advance history uh, that we can apply to our times, as well as carrying forward the the lessons from the 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 Black Freedom Struggle in our in our country to try to uh, identify the forces that are exist in our country and how they can creatively relate to each other to advance each other. And uh, some of it can be as simple as smoking a cigar and drinking some good whiskey at a bar on a Friday night talking about Gaddafi, man. It doesn't have to be so abstract, you know? I was just going to say one thing, because just this thing of thinking of in totalities and the interconnectedness. I mean, yeah, I think uh, I think it was Kathy who brought up Robeson, but that was Robeson, you know, the totality of the human experience expressed through folk culture, um, you know, through language also, the interconnectedness of all of it. Um, it's like, a, it, that's the most concrete representation of people, you know, their culture and their art. Um, but I was just, I just really think this thing of deindustrialization is so important. Yeah. And the fact that like, People are not talking about it as a political issue. Well, except for Trump, really. But the fact that this is something that affected the whole working class so viciously, and this is a common experience of all Americans. And yes, the Black tradition of trade unionism was working towards a solution, you know, jobs with peace, again, for a different monetary policy, you know. Um, yeah, but all, but, you know, you try to read about it and the histories are just so retrograde and everything is about how it was disconnected and uneven and uneven social geography, everything to obscure, 
you know, and I think, or to, to, to paint the working class as sexist and racist. So like, because the philosophical uh, framework for understanding all of this is so horrible, people don't, there, there's no way to actually understand this huge structural calamity that happened to everybody, you know, and how it's completely destroyed so much of art and culture and self-determination in this country. And I feel like that's why also we need Hegel to think about these things in like a way that we see the whole picture and we believe the people are capable of doing better, of governing, you know, of, of actually steering this country towards, you know, peace and prosperity. But yeah, I mean, that's just, just why philosophy is so important. Um, I just want to say that. So, Sorry, go ahead, Jerry. Well, I was just going to read some comments and then I guess we might move towards Hegel. Um, but yeah, so Danny, okay, so yeah, there's more discussion, but Danny says Hegel's, te Hegel's teleology is about the present, quote, the eternal present, as he puts it in the philosophy of history. The issue becomes that Hegel seems to affirm the crisis of society. For example, uh, he cites Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama, hmm. and then he adds, Totality is more than interconnection, so much as it is the truth of all determinations is found in the whole, and that even quote unquote dialectics doesn't mean anything outside of the totality. Mm. Um, and then uh, Pastor Keith Collins says, Greetings all. This is a very inspirational discussion, and we remain committed to the prophetic journey of completion and a new humanity. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yes, and yes. Then, uh, someone on YouTube named their their username is Credits Born says MAGA for Marx, i.e. Mar MAGA is the MAGA movement is bigger than Trump. A whole generation has been ghosted by free trade. Um, and then Daryl Wasteline Mitchell on Facebook says negation is a philosophical category expressing a certain type of relationship between two consecutive stages or states of a developing object or process. Negation is a necessary part of development and of the struggle between opposites. Um, and, it's and then there's more from Marx where he talks about the dialectic uh, and then I can't see the, the end of the comment. Um, but one thing I wanted to say even about the, the Trump thing is that like when I've talked to like family members who are Trump supporters, um, the interesting thing is that, you know, it's almost like, I don't know if like they would articulate it this way, but it's like they're also caught in it's it's almost a philosophical contradiction, like a logical contradiction because, you know, they see the um, the viciousness the viciousness and the lies of the ruling class and the ruling elite so clearly, but they don't. It's like hard for people I think to conceive of a solution to it because their their conception of freedom is of like the freedom of the individual and so the only way they can conceive of a solution to the ruling class is what it's like things like quote unquote like decentralization things like bitcoin like yacht like so on and so forth and it's much more of like a instead of freedom being achieved through further unity it's instead freedom being achieved through like dispersing things amongst just like mm -hmm. pockets of people mm -hmm. if that makes sense yes. but, yeah, yeah, like libertarianism. And but uh, but what I was trying to convince this is my dad. What I was trying to convince my dad is that like 
okay, like you see that there is basically a ruling cabal in this country. How do you think you're going to overcome it right. except through unity, like achieving further unity of the, the Trump movement or the MAGA movement? And yeah, and I feel like this is where like, like I don't know how much our discussions are heard. Like I think our discussions are heard by many different kinds of people, What like especially online. But um, yeah, I think this is where like we, yeah, like have something to say to people too. Like even people, yeah, like people in the Trump movement where like, you have to consider that where like especially yeah like that movement itself like where it finds itself in history is having to make a choice between almost yeah like two different philosophies uh, um yeah and concepts of like human human action of human behavior and of human history um and of like what is logical and um oh yeah jahan also adds wait, no, Oh. Wait, but also Daryl. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Wait, the rest of Daryl's comments. Oh, okay, okay. I'll read, I'll read the rest of Daryl's comments. Um, so uh, Daryl Wasteland Mitchell he adds, as it develops, an object inevitably reaches the stage of its own negation. That is, becomes qualitatively something other than itself. Right. The negation of the old and the rise of the new constitute yeah. a chain without beginning or an end, and in this process. The developing object simultaneously becomes something other than itself and in a certain sense remains what it was. For example, youth negates childhood and is itself negated by, by maturity, which is then negated by old age. At the same time, these are merely different stages in the development of the same person. This continual self-negation characterizes ongoing self-development in nature, in society, and in cognition. And then he gives a quote from Engels, quote, True natural historical and dialectical negation taken formally is precisely what constitutes the driving principle of all development, splitting into antitheses, their struggle and resolution. Um, and then his last paragraph, a waistline writes, dialectical negation is above all creative negation in which the old is not simply discarded and destroyed, but quote, removed, afgehoben, <laughs> uh, he uses a German term. Um, so, so the old is not simply discarded and destroyed, but preserved in a new capacity. Lenin emphasized that an essential part of the dialectic is, quote, negation as a movement of connection, as a, as a moment, as, okay, negation as a moment of connection, as a moment of development, retaining the positive. This, quote, retention of the positive, the unity of negation, continuity and development is an important feature of dialectical negation as a universal principle of being, which manifests itself in different ways at um in different ways at different levels of the organization of matter um but can yeah. i just say that the reason why i liked the ending part of daryl's com comment is because especially when daryl talks about negation which is like something qualitatively becomes something it's like when something qualitatively becomes something other than itself but at the same time retains what it was I liked I liked even the example Daryl gave about youth. Like you, youth negates childhood and is itself negated by maturity, which is negated by old age. There's something okay, maybe this is stupid, but the reason why I liked that part is because it reminded me of the way James Baldwin always compares in his analysis of America. It's that America is a nation stuck in adolescence <laughs> that always that has an inevitable inevitable duty and destiny of maturity yeah but must like but must like reach that stage and by reaching a stage will also never necessarily lose what it was once was 
um i don't know i kind of liked it because i also i just also like the thinking about baldwin in relation to dialectics and you know even hegel because i feel like that's kind of what we're doing here which is like in some ways we're just we're trying to further define this philosophy that we like have in some ways been operating under um but yeah well because i think this thing of my allergies are really bad today so my brain is a little foggy but i think like this thing of like du bois as a philosopher and then the black freedom movement as like basically centering itself on the category of freedom i feel part of hegel's if i'm i don't know if my understanding is the best but i feel like hegel is talking about also freedom like what does freedom actually mean and how that's conditioned by history and i feel like no matter what like the first american revolution the second like they're all about freedom in a way but that idea of freedom the concept of freedom has to be negated and developed and mm. also attain a certain maturity mm. because i feel like part of the thing is that the american assumption really curtailed the maturity of like the development of the idea of freedom mm. and so for like the trump movement or for all the americans like the philosophical question is like yes we want freedom but what does freedom actually mean in this time yeah. and the thing is that your idea of freedom can't be going back right. like to the right. past to right. a different understanding of society because right. humanity has changed mm-hmm. and i feel like in that like humanity like the lessons of history should like i guess preclude or like lead to a like a maturing of the idea of freedom and i think that's that like guess in relation to like the black proletariat and the becoming of a new american people i think is like in some ways like a really interesting connection because i feel like the black proletariat mm-hmm. holds the key to like actually a much more advanced idea of freedom but that has to be realized like concretely through i think like the changing of the society um because i feel like even like this thing of like a nation within a nation Mm -hmm. is like i feel like the black proletariat was able to put into practice in some ways like a much more advanced idea of freedom and that kernel like that experience is part of america right but it hasn't been actually like fully fully realized and so i don't know i think this just like this broadening and putting into complete practice is i feel like the task of what america has to become now um mm. and i feel like yeah it just connects a lot to hegel but yeah mm. um <laughs> further comments if that's okay uh, jahan jahan says i just wanted to say that this idea of synthesis being understood as totality is very deep and robeson really fits as a human working for totality um danny adds that trump appropriated reagan's quote make america great um, as quote "Make America Great Again" in order to smash the Reagan coalition, returning to the returning to the beginning to overcome it, and that is an example of the dialectic. Um, Todd asks, "What did you make of the quote unity speech made by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. <sighs> announcing his presidential campaign?" Um, and then uh, Wasteline uh, adds that the quote that he made in his comment is from the Free Dictionary, and it's from someone named Spurkin and not from me. <laughs> Um, and then Credits Born, who I think, uh, yeah, adds that, uh, you know, Infrared, which is led by this guy Haas, uh, that they have been involved in discussing, discussing MAGA communism. Um, and then uh, Danny adds that 
uh, Hegel critiques mere change in his in his work, The Logic of Being, as um, sorry, it's kind of hard to understand. But okay, and then he adds, uh, he says yes to what Neri said. Freedom has to be free. The principle and the determination themselves come into conflict, and it is self-contradictory. Um, and yeah, I think even in terms of like the the MAGA thing, like something that's been really interesting in the process of reading Black Reconstruction is that, yeah, like actually I've only really been able to make sense of the Trump movement through Du Bois and through like the yeah like the traditions of like the first American Revolution, then Reconstruction as the second. And then the civil rights movement as a third. And like one of the ways that I've been interpreting even, yeah, the Trump movement is that it's it's not like white working people completely rejecting whiteness itself, but it's almost that they become restless in the categories that have been imposed on them. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, like the, that's kind of how like we understand the movement of American society today. And that like you really need you really like, yeah, you really need someone like Du Bois in order to make sense of it. Not just to be like the way that liberals will use sometimes misappropriate Du Bois to condemn the Trump movement and to label as fascist, but actually like Du Bois in the true sense. Um, but yeah. Okay, everybody, do you want to read Hegel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. Where would you like to begin? Uh, could um, we begin where we left off the last time? Yes. Okay, I'll do it. Forty-five. Or page forty-five. No, that's for the first chapter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, okay. Uh, could we begin uh, with the paragraph? Here we only have to consider. Let's see. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, wait, uh, Serafina, are you reading? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna mute myself and share. Yay, this will be so fun. Here, we only have to consider how the logical beginning appears. The two sides from which it can be taken have already been named, namely either by way of mediation as result or immediately as beginning proper. This is not the place to discuss the question apparently so important to present day culture, whether, whether the knowledge of truth is an immediate awareness that begins absolutely, a faith, or rather a mediated knowledge. Insofar as the issue allows passing treatment, this has already been done elsewhere in my Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences, third edition in the prefatory concept. Here we may quote from it only this, that there is nothing, there is nothing in heaven or nature or spirit 
or anywhere else that does not contain just as much immediacy as mediation so that both these determinations prove to be unseparated and inseparable and the opposition between them nothing real. As for a scientific discussion, a case in point is every logical proposition in which we find the determinations of immediacy and mediacy and where there is also entailed, therefore, a discussion of their opposition and their truth. This opposition, when connected to thinking, to knowledge, to cognition, assumes the more concrete shape of immediate or mediated knowledge. And it is then up to the science of logic to consider the nature of cognition in general, while the more concrete forms of the same cognition fall within the scope of the science of spirit and the phenomenology of spirit. But to want to clarify the nature of cognition prior to science is to demand that it should be discussed outside science and outside science, this cannot be done, at least not in the scientific matter, which alone is the issue here. A beginning is logical in that it is to be made in the element of a free, self-contained thought in pure knowledge. It is thereby mediated for pure knowledge is the ultimate and absolute truth of consciousness. We said in the introduction that the phenomenology of spirit is a science of consciousness, its exposition. That consciousness has the concept of science that is pure knowledge for its result. To this extent, logic has for its presupposition the science of spirit in its appearance, a science which contains the necessity and therefore demonstrates the truth of the standpoint, which is pure knowledge and of its mediation. Could I, could I just say something, if you don't mind me interrupting? Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very interesting um, set of propositions that he's putting forward that he will expand upon as we go through the book. But this, again, you know, we talked about this, the immediate and the mediate. The immediate is our a direct and primary encounter with the world outside of, uh, uh, of a pure spirit, pure mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The immediate mm -hmm. are the uh, intellectual conditions to transform or make what we experience into knowledge. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming here that when he talks about the sciences, he's talking about physics, biology, maybe, and mathematics, that they give us more than not immediate knowledge. Mm. But that immediate knowledge needs philosophy, uh, a structure of knowledge to bring even that immediate knowledge of, let us say, physics or biology to a level of science. Mm -hmm. 
So when he talks about science, he is not just talking about the particular sciences, but he is talking about philosophy as a synthesis of the immediate and the mediate, and hence producing knowledge on its highest level. I think that's what he is bending to. And this, by the way, is a, uh, a discourse where he's setting out where he is different. And it's not quite all that cut and dry, where he is different from Immanuel Kant, mm. which we won't go into right now, but that's what he's setting up here. And see where he says, the empirical, that is the, when he says sensuous, what we know through our senses and through our experience. Empirical is another way of talking about immediate sensuous experience. In this science of spirit, in its appearance, in its appearance the beginning is made from empirical sensuous consciousness, mm -hmm. and it is this consciousness which is immediate knowledge in yes. the strict sense. Mm -hmm. There, in this science, is where its nature is discussed. Any other? I think we're saying its essence. It's me. Oh, okay. Okay, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Any other consciousness, such as faith in divine truths, inner experience, knowledge through inner revelation, etc., proves upon cur cur cursory reflection to be very ill-suited as an instance of immediate knowledge. In the said um, treatise, immediate consciousness is also that which in the science comes first and immediately and is therefore a presupposition. Precondition. But in logic, the presupposition is what has proved itself to be the result of that preceding consideration, namely the idea as pure knowledge. Yes. By pure knowledge, he means categories that are not, that do not emerge from concrete experience. Mm -hmm. Logic is the pure science. That, yes. that is pure knowledge in the full compass of its development. But in that result, the idea has the determination of a certainty that has become truth. It is a certainty which, on the one hand, no longer stands over and against a subject matter confronting it externally, but has interior, interiorized it, is knowingly aware that the subject matter is itself, and on the other hand, has relinquished any knowledge of itself that would oppose it to objectivity and would reduce the latter to a nothing. It has exter externalized the subjectivity and is at one with its externalization. <laughs> okay. We'll have to come back to that. That's sure. true. Now, starting with this determination of pure knowledge, all that we have to do to ensure that the beginning will remain imminent to the science of this knowledge is to consider, or rather setting aside every reflection, simply to take up what is there before us. Okay, oh, go, no, go ahead, I don't want to Pure knowledge, thus withdrawn into this unity, has sublated every reference to another and to mediation, 
It is without distinctions and as thus distinctionless, it ceases to be knowledge. What we have before us is only simple immediacy. Experience. Simple immediacy is itself an expression of reflection. It refers to the distinction from what is mediated. The true expression of the simple immediacy is therefore pure being. Just as pure knowledge should mean nothing, but knowledge as such, so also pure being should mean nothing but being in general, being and nothing else without further determination and filling. Being is what makes the beginning here. It is presented indeed as originating through mediation, but a mediation which at the same time sublates itself and the presupposition is of a pure knowledge, which is the result of finite knowledge, of consciousness. But if no presupposition is to be made, if the beginning is itself to be taken immediately, then the only determination of this beginning is that it is to be the beginning of logic, of thought as such. Yeah. Can I, can I just say something? Mm -hmm. These are very important. When he says thought as such, mm -hmm. pure thought, mm -hmm. that's directly from Kant. When he says, and I, I want to underline again, immediacy and mediation, the concept that all experience is mediated yeah. by pure categories. That's Kant. Hegel refers to it as logic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The task of logic is to establish the categories that make experience oh, wow. make sense and meaningful. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So this is... You know, it is, it's almost, uh, and this is very, very much Immanuel Kant. Thinking is thinking uh, at the level of pure thought mm -hmm. is thinking through categories, mm -hmm. thinking through mediations. Mm -hmm. You'll hear this a lot these days, but it is a debased, I think, debased and imprecise uh, use of what. Kant, Immanuel Kant and Hegel were doing, that logic is um, the science of pure uh, categories, oh, the categories of thought. Mm -hmm. Phenomenology mm -hmm. is the study of consciousness, almost the study of immediacy. So logic is not something that Hegel is doing in a new way now. <laughs> uh, not completely. Okay. In this in this regards, we could say that Hegel is a Kantian. He is Kant. He is highly influenced by Kant. Okay. Although he differs from him, and I, you know. Okay, because my first thing was like, oh well, he's gonna do it in a new way. But if he hasn't gotten there yet, then no. Well, well, the other thing is, see, Kant says that there's a whole realm of the thing in itself, mm -hmm. which we cannot know. Okay. Things in themselves become things for us to the extent that they are mediated through categories of thought. What uh, Hegel does is to say 
the thing in itself becomes a thing for us, a thing for knowledge as uh, over historical time. Since categories are not static, but historical and evolving, mm -hmm. what is a thing in itself will gradually become a thing for us. Mm -hmm. That is what I think Du Bois uh, appropriates yeah. from uh, Hegel. And it's in certain of his essays on, uh, on philosophical and methodological um, questions. Okay, then sorry not to barge the point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the difference between Kant and Hegel? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I, I think, yeah, I think that's the biggest break. And um, Hegel will always argue with Kant, although he's indebted to Kant, over Kant's um, limiting what we could know. Mm. And Hegel feels that Kant made an unnecessary compromise with British empiricists, such as John Locke, such as David Hume. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Hegel argues that what logic or the study of pure categories suggest is that it is that not only is it possible but necessary to know things in themselves. Mm. You know, let me let me just say one just to so, show how Kant set it up. Kant made a distinction between phenomenon, things that we experience mm -hmm. and are conscious of. And noumena, N-O-U-M-E-N-A. Noumena were things beyond our experience and beyond our knowing. Mm -hmm. Hegel challenges Kant at that very point mm -hmm. that the thing in itself becomes a thing for us mm -hmm. as our categories of knowledge develop. develop. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the way I would put it. Okay. Now, of course, these are very complicated issues. I think um, Hegel scholars, among them Danny Jacobs, uh, might, um, might differ. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and they might say that what I'm saying is an overgeneralization. I, however, think and, and I, I would use as an authority of this Lenin's notebooks on Hegel, where uh, Lenin pays enormous attention in his notebooks to this um, division, first brought up by Kant, of the thing in itself that we cannot know mm -hmm. and the thing for us which we can know. And what... Um, what Lenin, Lenin was like Hegel, very optimistic about the possibility to break the barrier of things beyond our knowledge or the thing in itself and making the thing in itself a thing for man, for society, for, you know, and that's, and of course, that's why I think Hegel says that philosophy stands, I wouldn't even say side by side, but, but stands as a superstructure over the other sciences, pointing to 
Well, what we just finished up, to a more holistic understanding of the world, where if you, if you took the separation of thing for us and the thing in itself, you never get to what I think Hegel is aspiring to, and that is a totality, to understanding things as a whole. I, he would, I think Hegel would ultimately say absolute knowledge. Is that, okay, I'm sorry. Is that what ideology is? Though? No, 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 no. I don't think so. Like, uh, in I terms of like the worldview concept, I, I, I don't, I don't know quite about that right now. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, what this discussion is is in the realm of philosophy, mm -hmm. and it's in this Kant Hegel. Yeah debate, okay. and I think what Lenin does, uh, I'm not familiar with Marx doing this, but what Lenin does in his notebooks on Hegel's science of logic is to come down on the side that the thing in itself is not will not always be a thing in itself. Mm -hmm. It can and will become a thing for man as knowledge expands, as uh, new categories uh, develop. For example, I could give you a concrete example, maybe. There is reason to believe that in Du Bois's uh, discovery as a concrete reality, but as a knowledge category, the Black proletariat, he expanded our capacity to understand the class struggle, the struggle of classes. He, uh, so what in many instances could be seen as a thing in itself, the struggle of classes. You know, people say, well, what is the evidence of that? In the United States, we see a unifying of classes, the development of a big middle class, you know, out of these disparate working class groups. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so, the class struggle as a category, as a reality, could even be viewed as a thing in itself, mm. a thing that could not be known. Mm. Du Bois, I think, makes the class struggle a thing for us with the category of the black proletariat, because then it becomes a concrete universal rather than an abstraction. I, and I, I know I'm not putting this in a completely good way, but I think it, I'm trying to get to the point of how does the thing beyond our knowledge, beyond our knowledge categories, and beyond us become things for us? You know? Mm -hmm. uh, now, I guess just to be quick about it, your question of ideology, it makes sense because then ideology and worldview changes with this expansion of knowledge mm -hmm. and, and more sophisticated and more scientific knowledge categories. Mm, okay. That's the way I would put it. I think this is something we might return to. Can I ask a question related to this? Mm -hmm. um, so would you say that like this whole move of identity politics is 
and it, it's like neo-Kantian because it treats <laughs> the, the things that mediate social relations as things in themselves which cannot be either like really known or like I guess changed in some ways I, I don't know I, I'm just trying no, to no 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 it's that's a very interesting and fascinating point that you make which I cannot answer okay. but but I would say this Kant is very influential for good and bad in modern social discourse I think the imprint of of Kant is the strongest footprint in social thinking and social discourse of any philosophical system. Now, neo-Kant, there are many neo-Kantianisms. Some are very debased uh, neo-Kantianisms, but I think they do appropriate, and you write about this, they appropriate the concept mediation. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I, I, right off the top of my head, I don't have examples that I, would feel um, confident to make of that. But I've always felt that their appropriation of the category or the concept mediation uh, was, uh, was debased, distorted, and, uh, <coughs> and, and was, was neo-Kantian in a very uh, uh, distorted way. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. But Jerry, I mean, I, I can't think of uh, the appropriate uh, examples right now. Well, I mean, I just feel like the way that identity politics takes, like the way that it gets practiced is yeah. just basically like people saying like, oh, like you cannot know what it's like to be black or like you cannot challenge like that thing which mediates my place in the world. And everything is kind of yeah. like locked into that. And yeah. I don't know. For me, it's also kind of vague. <coughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, Danny is also, I think, agreeing with us that identity politics is neo-Kantian, but actually really much worse. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's the word. I mean, it gives Kant a bad name. But, you know, my I think I hear what you're saying, Jerry, that my relationship with society is mediated by my gender. Yeah, uh, my subjectivity. Now, here is where this is. This is not. This is not Kant, because Kant was not a, a right subjectivist. In other words, everything was not experience or my uh, my own um, experience. Uh, what Kant was saying is that. Uh, our experiences are mediated, are made meaningful through universal categories of knowledge. Categories that apply across gender, across class, across culture, across nations. And these universal categories mediate our experiences and if properly understood, bring us all to certain uh, 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 common truths. And that's why, you know, um, yeah, that, let me stop. I was going to talk about Noam Chomsky, but not, we don't have to do that right now. No, I mean, just 
just to add, because I think the, the interesting thing is that I feel like identity politics maybe started out as pure sub like pure subjectivity yes. but yeah. it then progressed to become something much more in some ways like absolute where okay. you know like it's the you know like the way that someone like you know robin d'angelo or ibram kendi will describe like how racism operates in society it's almost like you can't question them and actually like even if you have your own experience that actually you are not experiencing what you're really experiencing yeah. actually what everything yeah. that you're doing is an expression of your own white racism or your own like uh, white fragility i guess um, and so it is thus a denial of truth mm -hmm. yeah and and a, an affirmation of millions of truths mm -hmm. my truth your truth black truth white truth male truth you know uh etc and then this this is this is the the crisis of identity politics and why it doesn't ring true to most people is the claim that uh it's 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 philosophical anarchism by the way uh it it goes against the possibility of truth um yeah, I, I would say that. And so racism is whatever 40 million black people say about their experiences with race and racism. And then, you know, on the other side, uh, 100 million white people could say, well, that's not our experience. So then we set up a, you know, diversity and equality framework where we can all be a part of a discourse, an unending discourse about our experiences. And they say that's democracy, that's freedom, where we can all be on MSNBC and have a representative, a joy, whoever, whatever her name is, and somebody on uh, CNN who represents more closely my experience. And then on Fox, everybody that represents white experience. And, you know, it's an endless, uh, and of course I would argue meaningless downward cycle from the truth. And by the way, I think that is one of the weaknesses of, um, what's his name that wrote the book on identity, you know. Um, Finkelstein. Yeah, Norman Finkelstein that he does not establish the philosophical paradox of identity politics because it is a it, it emerges from a social problem that is answered by creating philosophical paradoxes that do not answer the social problem but probably exacerbates them. Should I continue? I also wanted to ask a question. I think it's related to what Jeremiah is asking, but like you know, like here it seems to me that uh, um, Hegel is making a distinction between you know pure and immediate knowledge. Is yeah. that right? And yeah. I mean, I was thinking of this because, yes. like you know, in the way. Uh, like in the way, like you know, science increasingly is, uh, like you know, is 
is sort of pushed forward towards society you know like it comes from experts it comes from these high priests yes. and it seems that you know like science and scientific knowledge is something that you know, immediately comes to like you know a small section of like you know the elite basically and this idea that hegel is saying is that you know science is something that is understood by people and it it's something that's not understood right now and we get to know it as you know like as time evolves as uh and in this like i think this is what he is saying is you know pure knowledge in the sense that it is mediated uh as opposed to like you know how uh like the role that experts are trying to play in society where like science is something i mean it's it's the same it's almost like uh-huh. i mean it's all it's almost like the dogmatic church that yeah. you, know, you have this you know high priest and this altar of like you know where immediate science uh, like has revealed itself to to some people who are going to explain it to the rest of us uh, uh like you know i was thinking of this because like this distinction between pure and immediate knowledge is not entirely clear um to me yeah but one thing i i think i would firmly agree with you about chambarta and and this is why i like both kant and hegel they both believed in humanity mm. they i mean they didn't understand african humanity they didn't understand asian humanity but what they are basically saying is that science is something it's a human enterprise engage not in not by quote experts alone but by people in general and science can be known it can be a great social enterprise because the categories of knowledge as well as experience itself are all very human and of course i feel noam chomsky's linguistic theories i think they're they're kantian but what noam chomsky establishes is that there are no great languages and little languages and smart languages and dumb languages language is a property of all humanity a great democratic insight and that's if noam chomsky never says anything else that's the greatness but in terms of logic as a uh, a pure concepts let us say or the discovery of pure concepts of knowledge that's something we're going to have to work out because that's at the level of mediacy things and we 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 experience things but we do not fully know them unless they are mediated mm-hmm. through uh categories of pure knowledge and that is what hegel is trying to discover and by the way i feel in my reading it's a very torturous path that he's on you know he wrote this book he was writing this book from about um i guess 1812 if i'm correct to the end of his life he was writing the science of logic for about um 20 some years and hence it is his magnum opus albeit incomplete 
And he was trying to establish a way of thinking, a way of doing rational, scientific philosophy. I'll put it that way. And, and you know, that's, that's what makes it so compelling. That's what makes it so compelling. And once you realize it is incomplete, a work in progress, there's certain paradoxes that I don't think he could resolve or answer. He's humble enough, I think, to admit this, you know, and, it, you know, the, the text goes through many things and, you know, like, you know what I'm saying, you know, when you work in something out, you don't get it all right and you don't live long enough to get it all right. But the spirit of what he is doing and the achievement is very important. One last thing. While Kant might have the biggest imprint upon social and philosophical sciences across the board, maybe Hegel is the most debated philosopher. Uh, I mean, you got people, like I said, Bertrand Russell, uh, the British analytic philosopher, he says, it's not worth reading. There are others who said the same thing. There were people who said that Hegel's science of logic could only lead to the overturning of democracy and civilization. It was seen as a threat. And they would say, well, how do you know that? Well, look who likes him, Marx and Lenin and revolutionaries like Hegel. You know, bourgeois Democrats tend to revise him or go to a certain part of Hegel. Marx and Engels were part of a movement to salvage Hegel from the conservatives in their time in the, you know, the 1840s and 30s and shit. So it's this, you know, we're entering into something uh, where you can still have profound differences of interpretation. But I think the framing of the work and the definition of logic as not just a matter of syllogisms, i.e. Aristotle, but of categories that can help us to understand things in totality, things in movement, things as they emerge. And hence, I would put it this way, logics and categories of possibility. And that it's an ongoing, historical, multi-civilizational, multi-generational project. That's what I think, that openness of Hegel uh, is so compelling and so interesting to me. And how, and this is my last one, how because of that, somebody like Du Bois could go in the door and, and, you know, pull from Hegel what was valuable to understand the concrete complexity of the U.S. class, race, nation um, dynamic or dialectic. Even the possibility 
of trilectics as a way of talking about knowledge of complex social realities. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Oh. It were all solved. We 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 didn't we could close this book and say, well, I'm gonna go and take a course at the University of Chicago with Robert Pippin, and that will answer all my fucking problems. You know, all I need to know about Hegel, I could learn or go to YouTube and listen to his lectures. But it's deeper than that, it's more than that. That's what I want to say. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Well, it's just a basic orientation towards history, like the project of knowing yeah. for knowing. I, I liked what you said. Lenin thought that we don't, it's not something in itself. We, it, we can know it as a thing for man. Uh, just the fundament, fundamental optimism about history and people and time. And um, yeah, I was also just thinking about Bandung um, or the non-aligned movement. Why do people, people are so interested in race, but nobody talks about this great world movement of humanity, talking about a different racial order, a different vision, you know, a different vision for man, peace, you know, disarmament, uh, development, just such a, it, it's, it's a concrete historical vision that people are striving towards and striving, but it just shows how this new regime of wokeness, it, it, it's, it doesn't have a Hegelian, um, yes. Uh, ambition, or it's it's just it doesn't have a, a, a theory of history or an understanding of what side of history it's on, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, that's the ba that's the main thing I get from Hegel is just mm -hmm. a fundamental optimism, mm -hmm. and which is something that has been so denied, especially to our generation with all of the yeah. postmodernity and just the dismantling of the education system. Uh, it's really to deny the idea that we can know and, and change the world. You know, it's so interesting, and I know, you know, your work is a part of this, that two people separated by thousands of miles, Harold Washington and Romesh Chandra, both embodied the Bandung principles, the mayor of Chicago and the head of the World Peace Council from India. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought about that. That's so interesting, Doc. But even the, the work I'm trying to do on gentrification, mm -hmm. the Black worker as a historical force. Yes, yes. You know, and gentrification as an attack on this. It's just, it's so hard to fit into any of the paradigms because they don't think in this historical way or this optimistic way or like to see a different kind of project it's just also overdetermined by political economy or just, oh, this is racial capitalism, whatever they're saying now. But the fundamental optimism about a different kind of historical project. Yes. Well, I also, I'm, it's also just, you know, the, just the purpose of philosophy. You know, um, I think it's, it's, I think people who practice it aren't clear about that question at all. But revolutionaries are and have to be. That's right. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my young Hegelians, uh, you guys got my mind uh, thinking real fast right now. This uh, this reminds me of uh, uh, I I, tr I try to uh, I guess 
makes sense of everything we've talked about with the parable of uh, the, the three blind men and the elephant. I don't know if y'all ever heard it, but it's like basically like, you know, three blind dudes touch the elephant and they all say, oh, they, they, they touch a different part of it. And one guy's like, oh, it's hard and, and pointy because it's got the toss. The other guy gets the trunk and the other guy gets the, the leg or whatever. And it's like you each, you, you have the, the immediate and the immediate uh, mm -hmm. and, and they can only get certain parts of it because of where they're at. Uh, but together, I, I don't know what the mechanism, I don't know what the Hegelian mechanism is, mechanism is. I'd like to know more about that. But somehow together, you can know the whole truth. Uh, and I think about that the way you illustrated the con uh, Bandung, where they're like, what is freedom for us right now? And you can't do it alone, although you can get pretty far. Each country has gotten pretty far. Uh, but if you, when you come together, you, because you've had different experiences and you've uh, interpreted them differently, uh, you can arrive at a fuller truth uh, that matters for more than just you uh, and for other people as well. Right. So, yeah. so this is very positive philosophy, man. This is, you know, this, this is the good shit. Yeah. 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 And that goes back to the conversation about well, what Alice was bringing about with Vietnam and Korea and like the totalities thing. And it's also opposite. Like, it's not like one man who knows everything, mm -hmm. but that everybody has knowledge to be used for humankind or like mm -hmm. for a time to come or like, you know, the immortal child, basically. Um, and the other thing that, that, that I keep going back to it, but the totality conversation we were having, it reminded me also about the uh, North Korea event because of the question of, you know, reunification and unity. And I, this is mentioning at a different point of the conversation that I want. So it's not that important. We all know that like also the struggle in America and for democracy is a struggle of um, to like against racism, to know that human beings are not property, except, and, but what I mean is that to unite the American population here, and um, I just think that is in tandem with, I mean, or at least Korea had shown that um, possibility too, but is as regards to totality things and as regards to how knowledge is to be used and all human beings are capable of understanding um, knowledge itself and using it for hum for humanity. Um, like the struggle for freedom and against colonialization, colonialism and like war is like the struggle to unite um, and like become a complete, like complete human beings. Um, because I was also thinking like the ruling class tactics against the people is to divide and conquer. Yeah, that's um, could, I, could I ask, could we just, I know we don't have a lot of times because you have to get to work. Mm -hmm. Could we just complete these next two paragraphs? Because I think they will bring us close mm -hmm. to resolving what we're talking about right now. Yeah, we, I don't mean to take it off. I was no, 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 you didn't take, no, 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 no. But I think this, it relates directly to it. So we okay, can start, cool. but if no presupposition. Okay. But if no presupposition is to be made, if the beginning is itself to be taken immediately, then the only determination of this beginning is that it is to be the beginning of logic, of thought as such. Pure thought. 
pure thought. No, that means just... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I see what you mean. I'm sorry. There is only present to resolve, which can be all, which can also be viewed as arbitrary, of considering thinking as such. The this is it. Go ahead. The I'm beginning sorry. must then be absolute, or what means the same here must be an abstract beginning. And so there is nothing that it may presuppose must not be mediated by anything or have a ground, ought to be rather itself the ground of the entire science. Mm -hmm. It must therefore be simply an immediacy or rather only immediacy itself just as it cannot have any determination with respect to another, so too it cannot have any within. It cannot have any content, for any content would entail distinction. And the reference of distinct moments to each other, and hence immediation. The beginning is therefore pure being. Okay, pure categories, without any reference to actual concrete realities. Okay? This is not what Du Bois or Marx does. But let's see what this means for, for okay. Hegel. After this simple exposition of what alone first belongs to this simplest of all simples, the logical beginning, we may add the following further reflections, which should not serve, however, as elucidation or con end confirmation of the exposition, this is complete by itself, but are rather occasioned by notions and reflections which may come our way beforehand. And yet, like all other prejudices that antedate the science of logic must be disposed of within the science itself and are therefore to be patiently deferred until then. The insight that absolute truth must be a result and conversely, that a result presupposes a first truth, which, wait, that's so funny. Wait, which because it is first objectively considered is not ne necessary and from the subjective side is not known. This insight has recently given rise to the thought that philosophy can begin only with something which is hypothetically and problematically true, and that at first, therefore, philosophizing can be only a quest. This is, I know, I'm just thinking like, this is beautiful actually. Um, this is a view that Reinhold has repeatedly urged in the later stages of his philosophizing, and which must be given credit for being motivated by a genuine interest in the speculative nature of philosophical beginning. A critical examination of this view will also be an occasion for introdu introducing a preliminary understanding of what progression in logic generally means, for the view has direct implications for the nature of this advance. Indeed, as portrayed by it, progression in philosophy would be rather a retrogression and a grounding only by virtue of which it then follows as result that that with which the beginning was made was not just an arbitrary assumption, but
but was in the in fact the truth and the first truth at that. Yeah. It must be admitted that it is an essential consideration, one which will be sorry. Uh, one which will be found elaborate, elaborated again within the logic itself. That progression is a retreat to the ground. To the that progression is a retreat to the ground, to the origin and the truth on which that with which the beginning was made and from which it is in fact produced depends. Thus, consciousness on its forward path from the, from the immediacy with which it began is led back to the absolute knowledge which is its innermost truth. That's right. The, this truth, the ground, is then also that from which the original first proceeds, the same first which at the beginning came on the scene as something immediate. It is most of all in this way that absolute spirit, which is revealed as the concrete and supreme truth of all being, comes to be known as at the end of the development, it freely externalizes itself, letting itself go into the shape of an, of an immediate being, mm -hmm. resolving itself into the creation of a world which contains that all fell within the development preceding that result in which through this reversal of position with its beginning is converted into something dependent on the result as principle. Essential to science is not so much that the pure immediacy should be the beginning, but that the whole science is in itself a circle in which the first becomes also the last and the last also the first. And this is, that's a, that's, you know, we could, I don't want to say, that, but this paragraph should and can be read a number of times and it is like Seraphina, it's something beautiful about this because he's talking from the assumption of dialectical relations between immediacy and mediacy. It is dialectical. And he says, but where to begin? He says, we begin with the universal abstraction. And he says, that these universal abstractions are also ways to make sense of immediate experience, but also as a way of testing immediate uh, uh, abstraction. Could we go back to that part we talked okay. about the problematic and the hypothetical? The this is first, like the critical examination part. Yeah, the, good, good. yeah. You see, uh, see right this part. Okay. okay, you see this right here. This insight is recent, give rise to the thought that philosophy can begin only with something which is hypothetically and problematically true. Hegel does not agree with that. The hypothetical and problematic is more associated with Kantian uh, pure reasoning. Um, I forget off the top of my head how Kant deals with the hypothetical. Uh, but but Kant does not. He says that 
the pure concepts of, of knowledge are not hypothetical. They are truths or close to being truth. That's the way I, I, I interpret what he's saying here. But the beginning is with the abstract. Um, Oh, good. So then what's the difference between the abstract and the concrete? Like, what's the, <laughs> the, the abstract in Hegelian terms, as I understand him, uh, exists for itself without reference to experience. Okay. The abstract is is abstract because it is not um, it is not determined uh, by um, sensuous empirical mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Wait, can I read the the, okay. the insight? The absolute truth must be result and I mean, just the. Part. Did you read it? Read okay. The insight that absolute truth must be a result, and conversely, that a result presupposes a first truth, which, because it is first, objectively considered, is not necessary, and from the subjective side is not known. This insight has recently given rise to the thought that philosophy can begin only with something which is hypothetically and problematically true, and that at first, therefore, philosophizing can can be only a quest. And and Hegel does not agree with that. Meaning like meaning like in other words Oh, so the mm -hmm. difference is is the beginning, like No no no. Right? The difference is that the categories of knowledge, okay. of logic, uh -huh. as it were, are not hypothetical or hypothetical or problematic. Oh. They are like, truths. Like contrary meaning? No, they are truths. No, I said I was trying to understand problematic, like contrary or no? Um, uncertainty. Oh, okay. You know, uh, we don't know either, you know, uh, these pure categories or these pure concepts are uh, hypothetically true and they have to be proven true uh, or problematic, meaning that almost the same thing. Uh, and, um, what I think Hegel is saying, if you take that approach, that which anchors scientific philosophy and scientific philosophy is made problematic and hypothetical. And what he is striving for is something more certain. That's interesting. That's what I'm that's the way I'm interpreting. Because it seems like instead of just like debating for the sake of like Absolutely, I'd say that just true. talking, mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. you're seeking out the truth and what it would mean. That's true. That's true. And and you're right, because the other side would be uh, endless debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, th I think in terms of the truth of abstract categories, of abstract universals, uh, uh, what I think Hegel is saying, we must assume they are true. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are to make sense of these multiple exp experiences. In other words, abstract categories are the anchor, the ground of mm -hmm. knowledge itself. 
And we cannot assume them to be hypothetical or problematic. Yeah. Okay. Or, as he puts okay, it, problematically true. Okay. They are true. Now, that raises certain problems that I'm not prepared to go into now because I'm, I have to research it a little bit more. Mm. But um, uh, the idea of the notion or absolute truths that uh, are discovered in these abstract uh, notions. He would say that these abstract categories or the notions are essences. So we know it's some well, I don't think it. it's it's like we will know them better if we know their essence. Mm. This hypothetically and problematically true means that well we're not certain. Mm -hmm. And Hegel is saying that if we look at these categories having developed over time, they are more absolutely true than they are hypothetically true. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to give, uh, I think Hegel the benefit of the doubt. He is not naive about absolute truths in this sense. Um, he is not saying, in other words, he's not doing Plato. Mm where the ideal or the ideas are the absolute truth. He is saying something else like the notion of whatever, the notion of being mm -hmm. is a way of capturing the essence of being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I know the question of the mechanisms of this is something we have to get back to. But uh, I think for the time being, this is um, uh, much of what we need to know. If you just read this sentence, indeed, in as portrayed. Indeed, as portrayed by it, progression in philosophy would be rather a retrogression and a grounding only by virtue of which it then follows as a result that that with which the beginning was made was not just an arbitrary assumption, but was in the fact, in fact, the truth and the first truth of that. This is it. That's what that's mm -hmm. him, and and therefore he counterposes that to hypothetically and yeah. problematically true. Mm -hmm. I can see it better now. Well, mm -hmm. I, that's what I'm. Mm -hmm. We have to find out whether that's accurate. You know, I think it's accurate. Okay. Yeah, Danny. Um. So when Hegel talks about progression proceeding through grounding or retrogression, that's what Danny is saying. Like that's what he means by critique. You can only proceed. You can only achieve, I guess, progress by returning to like the original thing. Hmm. Okay. Okay, okay. See, I'm I'm reading that a little bit different. And this is again competing translations also. Yes. I think I think what he is saying here is that if philosophy is not grounded in um, abstract truths. Mm -hmm. 
than it is, I think it regresses to um, problematic. To, problematic, no, to uncertainties. That. That's the way I would interpret it. Because yeah. I think sometimes it's hard to refer, it's hard to tell whose viewpoint Hegel yes. is referring to. Yes. A lot of the time, because you also just use it to reference like a million different things. Yes. It's yeah. Um, the thing is, the way he sets his narrative up, it's almost like you're waiting with dated breath for him to get to the conclusion. And I don't know that we'll get to it today, but we will a few pages on. Because I think, see, what he is presenting also as a paradox in previous philosophy, a paradox that he seeks to resolve. So I, I would um, I would suggest that we not rush. I think we got a grasp on what he's doing, mm -hmm. and um, that next week we we just plow ahead. And I think he resolves what he sees as a paradox, especially in Kantian philosophy. Right, and that paradox is. Can we know things in themselves? Mm. And can we make things in, in themselves things for us? Right. On this, I am uh, deeply influenced by my reading of Lenin's notebooks. Oh. Where he, Lenin, devotes a huge amount of time uh, to this question of the thing in itself and the thing for us. Huh. The other thing is you can probably find it online, and that's volume 38, or just go to Lenin's notebooks on Hegel's philosophy of uh, 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 science of logic. Hmm. Okay, some homework. Yes, homework. Oh, that's exactly what I thought. I really thought about the same image in my mind popped up. <laughs> I just want to say one last thing. This this circular thing starting somewhere and then coming back to it yes. as part of the progression of uh, logic. It also reminded me of what we were saying about black reconstruction and then Hegel and then I back think, to yeah. And see, I think I agree with you about that, Urba. Uh, this idea of, of not one um, um, set of thoughts, set of things, the end. It is like that's circular. Mm -hmm. It is Black Reconstruction, Hegel, Black Reconstruction, and then possibly uh, Baldwin. And, you know, where where it is what Marx proposed, ascending to the concrete. Um, you know, and, and as quiet as it's kept, I think we can, uh, uh, we can look at uh, what Hegel does as a set of testable hypotheses. You know what I'm saying? Um, where they are tested in relationship to our ability to understand concrete realities. 
people say, well, what do you mean by concrete? Aren't ideas concrete? Uh, yeah, we'll come back to that. I mean, that's a whole nother set of issues. But, you know, it's like sometimes with Hegel, it's like peeling back um, layers of philosophy and trying to answer paradoxes within philosophy, especially, I think, especially within Kant. A Kant called the paradoxes of knowledge that he dealt with antinomies of knowledge. A-N-T-I-M-O-N-I-E-S, antinomies, which kind of takes the place uh, for what Hegel calls contradictions. I think in a lot of ways, what Kant meant by antinomies were unresolved and perhaps unresolvable paradoxes in philosophy and in knowledge. Could I say one thing real quick? Yeah, go ahead, man. Uh, I guess in trying to understand the way Hegel writes, so uh, that I can actually get what he's saying. Yes. Um, it seems to me like he writes in this type of circular way um, that keeps like referencing itself as the argument builds out to keep referencing and proving itself yeah. uh, along the way. So I just thought that might be a little helpful to share. I think you're absolutely right. It is a form of, of metaphysics, writing metaphysically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's that's. I mean, I, you know, if you if you would look into this and say more, Nathan, I would appreciate it. I feel. I mean, like as you you know, look at the work because there's something of truth in what you said. Mm -hmm. It's not just straightforward. Mm -mm. Yeah, I mean, that's how science works, right? You have to keep referencing um, previous discoveries and and keep going back to your hypothesis. Um, and proving it along the way. So uh, I'll keep I, think that, yeah. I think that that's what Danny was also saying is that you can only go forward by referencing like back to the beginning. Yes. Um, which is his interpretation, like his, the way he uses the word critique is huh. to go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Wait, that's kind of deep because you remember in the August Wilson play, how the guy was um, the old man, the gray haired man, um, and no, no spoilers though. Shantanu hasn't seen it. Ever do well? He should be no. It should be no because we're gonna talk about it. Okay, thank you, Shantanu. But um, because he, the character in this August Wilson play, Radio Golf, um, you he seemed like the type of character that was like kind of crazy and you know illogical or whatever. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's like. How did um, Aunt Esther live for 395 years? Da, da, da. You're like, oh, he's definitely not talking about somebody who's real. Yeah. But uh -huh. little did people know <laughs> that it was actually fact and that, you know, he was even like as a character that that's what that reminded me about. Because I think there's a lot of people who might sound illogical or like kind of be jumpy or like, you know, there's a lot of people who talk funny, but there is actually truth in the meaning and what they're saying and the purpose in what they're saying. You just have to hear it. Um, 
Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. Because it's like a lot of ADHD, you can't focus on stuff. But well, I was saying to Kermai this, and like I said, I'm not someone who knows jazz very well at all. But actually, jazz kind of reminds me of what Nathan was saying, the way Hegel writes, because yeah. I feel like jazz is constantly, it's an expansion that remembers its reference point. Yeah. But I don't know. Great way to put it. That is a good way to put it, though. A great way to, it's a great way to understand jazz, especially the avant-garde. Mm. Uh, that's a great way to understand it. As long as you it. have your point, you can say it in a number yeah, of ways yeah, and examples yeah. to prove it. Well, you know, in the book uh, that I that I think uh, Kathy's going to interview called Free Jazz Communism, I think uh, Archie Shep, in something he wrote in that book was he does precisely that you know that past present and future all together um i i find it quite i find his way of thinking uh, quite dialectical to put it to put it that way mm. but it is that going back and forth yeah I... And you know it's so interesting, Nathan. And to, I mean, it's it's not so easy to understand what a writer who wrote this over two hundred and twenty-five years ago, when he made when you know how he's thinking, his back and forth, his references, and then going forward. Um, I, I agree with you. It's not so straightforward. I do agree. It's not it's not linear logic. So to put it another way, a computer could not write science of logic. Shut up. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yo, or produce uh, avant-garde jazz for that um, matter. We've already found yeah, that out. Yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah. That's 100% the case. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because another thing that we said about Hegel the first time that we read it was that he was like coming to the truth. He's like always constantly, ceaselessly working mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the person in my mind, also from what you doc have been explaining about him, trying to find the truth of it. Like, I yeah, it is, it is a quest for the truth now. I mean, he is not a cynic or pessimist about the truth. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, he is more optimistic about knowing the truth, which in a lot of ways is knowing a thing's essence, than Kant is, than probably Descartes is. He might be the most optimistic of all Western philosophers about the truth. Now, that you know crumbles in a certain way in the face of philosophers like Nietzsche. Mm. And then the British philosophers who... And, the, and Austrian philosophers who go towards uh, analytic philosophy, philosophy of clarity rather than philosophy of truth, mm. to make things clear. Oh, yeah. And it's so interesting. I wrote an essay. I hope Danny can publish it on analytical Marxism, which takes up the whole repertoire of analytic philosophy mm -hmm. of Russell and Mill 
and uh, Frege, I guess I don't know who else, is, Wittgenstein to a certain extent, where clarity trumps truth. If we arrive at the truth through unclear methods, they would argue, then how do we know it's the truth? The only truth is truth arrived at through a method that of, of logical clarity or analytic clarity, which is bullshit, which is bullshit. Science is not an elite project like that, as we were saying, mm, yeah. that everything is cut and dry and neat. See, that's, that's the, the delusional pr uh, promise of artificial intelligence that all of your ideology, all of your biases, all of your class, this, that, and the other, all of your anger, oh, we can set that aside and through a machine, get a clear path to knowledge and truth. And that's pure bullshit, pure bullshit. And to the extent that theoretical physicists try to make those claims and have their equations and mathematical equations and stuff, they are delusional and misleading people. That is not the, and that's what Hegel is, a, you know, you don't get, I mean, Hegel is trying to work something out. What they're saying is a machine intelligence could cut through all of the paradoxes and get to the ultimate truth. Uh, you know, and that's when we go to AI and all of that, we'll have a chance to. Uh, uh, final, uh, final comment, if we can. Uh, you know, the, the 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 world doesn't work through, I guess, uh, what, like propositional logic. If A, then B. Yes. If B, then C. If C, then D. Because in the way that the world is in motion, like A and B are changing all of a sudden. That doesn't hold anymore, and so. Uh, this the, the way that he and, and and even it's interesting the way he writes and it uh, reflects his thinking and I think uh, similar to how Nathan said and it's like he spent twenty years writing it so he had to go back and mm -hmm. forth and back and forth and kept adding to it like that and I guess we could finish it like that if we uh, if we go deep enough yeah, uh, yeah. but this is I, I have to train my brain because I don't like thinking like this this is this yeah. I'm I'm, simple. <laughs> I'm very simple man <laughs> wait that's funny though because in painting or like in class like. They're like, if you if you go, if you do that, then it becomes like you make it like muddy or whatever. So you might as well just leave it alone. But like, I don't know. And sometimes it depends on what you need to do and what your purpose is behind stuff. So understandable. With do we have any more comments that we'd like to read before we go? Uh no, just more discussion between Danny and the other person, BK, on YouTube. Yes. If anyone would like to read their the back and forth, like the conversation they had over the span of free school, you can always refer to it in the YouTube comments. Oh, it's in the YouTube, not the Facebook comments. No, actually, I think our YouTube viewership is far greater than our Facebook viewership now. Or maybe it's just people who like to comment will do it on YouTube. Okay. So. Well, also, the they're, they're kind of commenting real time. 
you know, because it's a live chat. So that's why it's a little bit harder to read like comments. It, there's also a limit. So, but yeah, there's quite a conversation going on. Oh, I, I want to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's nice because with YouTube now, you can, when you rewatch Free School on YouTube, if you watch it with the live chat on, then you can now look at watching it back. You'll see the comments pop up with like the ref right reference point in the YouTube video. So when you do the YouTube, you have to put the chat. On. You should be able to. Well, it might be harder for you, Doc, because you watch it on your phone. I think. No, I watch it. No, I watch it on computer or on my television. Okay. On your television. <laughs> Okay, then you should be able. I think you, you just have to. The live chat should just be on. We can figure this out after we say bye. Okay. But anyway, so thank you to all of our <laughs> listeners and viewers, and especially our commenters. We love your comments, um, they really add to the conversation. So keep commenting every week, and we'll see you next week as we continue this riveting discussion of Hegel's science and logic. So thank you again, and everyone stay healthy and stay safe. Bye. Bye.